out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Wooden Tops because I recently spoke to vocalist, songwriter, guitarist and everything else. It was the one and only Rolo McGinty to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. So this is the interview. Um, just a little, it comes with a health warning. It doesn't, but it does go on a very long time. So um, he does talk at the end, the last half an hour, I know, check it out, um, about the new album that the Wooden Tops are putting together, which you might be interested in. I'm not saying the rest of the interview is not fascinating. It's absolutely gripping, but it, um, it's quite long. And uh, you might think, where are they going with this? I have no idea, but um, just enjoy it. If you like it, fill your boots. If you don't, then frankly, Mr. Shangley, don't bother. But uh, Rolo, he's got a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, and he's had a bit of a journey getting there. But uh, like I said, yes, this is it. And um, if you were interested in the new material from the Wooden Tops, it's towards the end of this uh, rather long conversation interview. Wow, it's a chat, really. Anyway... So after several minutes of casual chat from me to him, etc., etc., we get down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Rolo, give us everything. Give it to us now. Well, I had lots of them. I mean, I think I think one of the earliest ones that I can remember is being a child in a fun fair and hearing Bebopalula with all of the kind of echo on the vocal and just being transfixed by that. Um, I remember very well. Uh, um, downtown <laughs> downtown i remember that used to really leap out as a sex machine i remember that wow. i remember uh then and then it sort of moved into the world of mark bolin and t-rex and uh and we also had stuff like black sabbath down at the kind of heavy end and then you had uh the Pink Floyd was was there. There was a cheap album came out called Relics, and it had some really cool songs on it, uh, and then some stuff that you could just like listen to for twenty minutes or something. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that was my door into the other world. That that particular album, and then there was uh, another one called the Faust Tapes, which was fifty p as well. And that one was a lot of it was just like noise experimentalism and then really cool pop songs and all different kinds of you know I, I know now kind of anarchic sort of you know commune music <laughs> it's really, really great it had yes. this really spangly sort of Bridget Riley cover on it it was a really characteristic piece of plastic and it was really cheap. So you things like that, you would just buy them and bring them home. And occasionally you bring back something really strong and solid like, like those last two albums. And um, but yeah, I was really into glam rock. Uh, David Bowie, funnily enough, was I was really I like Gene Genie. Mm -hmm. But I was quite slow to, to David Bowie. It's funny. Uh and um I think I came in with him around about kind of the German records and uh, that period. And, uh, but, you know, he's quite a sort of, uh, quite a, a, a figure in my life in that he is somebody that kind of came to me and booked us to come and play and, and sort of said some rather nice things to me, which, which is why, to be honest with you, I could never be a depressed person. I just could never be. So yeah, so uh, um, 
and it was a little embarrassing because I remember when I was like 13 or whatever, I was just sort of kind of almost a bit anti-Bowie. I don't know what it was. I didn't like about him. I, did, was, I think it was the arrangement. Some of the music that he did had quite sort of clever arrangements about mm. them. They were quite theatrical. And I think I was more heads down, you know, silver machine kind of a kid, you know. I liked all of that. Uh, and then I think hearing the first album by Soft Machine was a big one for me. Uh, and honestly, it just goes on there. And then I remember the first time I heard reggae and then the first time I heard Afrobeat. And um, I was well into electronic music because I was a Doctor Who kid. Right. And actually, because as a Doctor Who kid, I was looking at that kind of strangeness in just about everything, really. If it, you know, for example, when Roxy Music came out with Virginia Plain, there is a big moment, you know, and that had its little Doctor Who moment halfway through. And that was so exciting. You know, that 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 period of Roxy for me was was brilliant. Um, and then punk rock happened, of course, and punk rock was full of it. Uh, and then punk rock kind of went kind of new wave, which is extremely good too. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, I was completely immersed in all of these things and the scar music coming in. Oh my God. It was just so, such a, oh, the ruts. And then <laughs> there was just so many good bands in that period. And then we, now we're starting to get to the eighties and that's a point where uh, I, I, I was as, as a young man, I was sort of realizing that all my mates, including a particular one, the Jazz Butcher. He's, uh, 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 unfortunately, we lost him like three weeks ago. Yes. And um, he's actually the first person that, you know, I really got into music with and started playing music with. And so he, he really is actually, for me, literally a fellow, fellow traveller. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and we ended up sort of being in lots of bands together and in a way forming two bands instead of just being in the one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, were you yeah. from a musical family? Were your parents at all musical or you had any brothers or sisters who had any musical moments? Uh, actually, my father had a choice. Could he possibly make a career for himself as a wannabe crooner like Frank Sinatra uh, but there you have it in a nutshell. Frank Sinatra was already doing it, mm. uh, or or play safe and do the same as all the other m males in the family, which is work in the paper factory. So he went for the paper factory. He went so, there. So that's about the closest. My grandfather apparently had a violin, and I always had this image of him entertaining people in the pub where he always was in the pub. Um, you know, entertaining with his violin, but my mother assures me, no, no, he just sort of sometimes he used to practice a bit and then put it back under the stairs. <laughs> so, so I'm the first one to sort of like re really leap out and, and do it. You know? and, do it. and you didn't have any brothers or sisters, an older brother? I have a brother, yeah. Uh, it's funny, actually, because we're, we're, we're quite fused. I mean, we're, we've got four years between us, but like I'm the kind of musical one, but I'm sort of relatively okay with technology and he's an absolute expert boffin with technology and a little bit okay at musical dabblings as well so you know we're like that oh, and the funny crazy. thing is yeah I don't think we've ever had an argument <laughs> <laughs> that's unusual um yes yeah. that there you go that that's quite extraordinary isn't it because um yes that's normally not I don't know I think our family didn't really argue we just didn't talk to each other for a day or two and it all just had an atmosphere and then it would just change but no we didn't really used to shout at each other we weren't that sort of family and 
dad would suddenly mm. give us a hard stare and thump the sort of pepper pot down on the table. And it was like, oh my God, dad's a bit annoyed. Let's <laughs> stop doing that. Let's just, you know. And then yeah. it just kind of, it would, the moment would go eventually. So that was kind of interesting. But it was, I suppose the 70s was quite interesting because you had, you know, the glam world, but then it was the death of the 60s in a way with, you know, after Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin dying. So it must have been, for a lot of people who were around them, seeing that decade come to an end, especially with Altamont and the Manson murders, and then thinking, my God, what's this glam stuff? And men wearing kind of women's clothes and makeup it must have been such a shock I always think you know because now you look at Bowie and you think oh that's fine but at the time it must have been very outrageous and then Angie Bowie scene and Freddie Baretti and all those people it just was you know quite a wild time but you then you had status quo and Black Sabbath on the other side who was keeping it very male dominated so um yes it was interesting that whole period before it sort of drifted into sort of the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and then, you know, the punk world. So Prog was there as well. Because my I had a brother who was older than me, seven years old, and he he introduced me to the world of prog, which was, you know, where, you know, yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash. So it was kind of a weird moment really. That was that was his contribution to my life. Well, that and football. So um so then as the eighties progressed, what was your next kind of move into the the famous decade after, you know, we turn another well, uh, yeah, so um, I, I uh, yeah, I moved to London and uh, I sort of didn't really know where to start. So I kind of did that sort of buying a music paper and looking at adverts in the back. And, uh, you know, I, what I didn't realise is that all the time that I'd spent with the proto jazz butcher gang, uh, there was lots of us in bands in Oxford and we all did tons of gigs and practice loads so I don't think that I would I kind of had any much self-confidence but uh you know I, uh, I I sort of gave it a shot and I kind of got the first job that I applied for which was um playing bass in a a, a kind of punky moddy sky motowny quite cool band and uh we got the support tour for um, Dexter's Midnight Runners Gino um, first album tour when, when they did their first album. So within two weeks of being in that band, I was I was off on my first kind of like, you know, proper tour with like proper amounts of people and, and, and getting paid and, and doing that. It was a it was a brilliant moment. Yes. And I watched I watched Dexter's Midnight Runners. I went I started that tour kind of like yeah Gino's all right but it wasn't really big on it it wasn't really my thing mm. I started it with that kind of attitude and by the end of the tour I just absolutely loved them and you know I watched after the first night I watched them every single time I think there was only one time we had to drive somewhere I missed them uh and befriended most of them and uh and Kevin Rowland was cool to me as well and uh, I just had a long long list of accidents with Kevin Rowland that basically meant he probably thought that I was the enemy in some way and I really really wasn't I really respected him I was just a young guy you know it's really young and everything kind of goes wrong but also um on that tour was Keith Allen uh he was the compé he came down on, on a rope and you know he was the SAS comedian that was like bound my by god secret. that's fantastic not to and tell that... any of his jokes, you know. <laughs> and, and he would incite a riot every night. I mean, a real proper everything in the air, smash the place. I mean, it was always sold out. I mean, 
they were people on top of people in some places like Hastings Pier I thought it's just going to go <laughs> you know, when I did I was scared I was terrified uh but then um <clears throat> interesting character is a, a fellow called Seb Shelton now he was the drummer for Secret Affair but he was also the drummer for Dex's on that like come on Eileen period yes in, the dungarees and everything with the boot polish there he was on the drums um where he managed this band i was in which was called the upset uh it had like a a really brilliant singer frontman called archie brown who played sax and very sort of kind of muscular frontman he was brilliant he sings like kind of uh al green and stuff in his right yeah he's just got this really varied voice it's like his saxophone he can like really overblow the reed and just but he can also play quite sensitively and his singing is the same he was anyway um uh yeah so uh we we did this tour and uh at the end of the tour uh my band and dex's midnight runners uh, they all run away together and left unfortunately there was the bass player of dex's join my my band so i was left out in the cold and they all went off. They had they formed this band called the Bureau, and the Bureau, which was half my band, half the Dexes, off they went. Uh, and <clears throat> so I had a, a, a you know a, a moment of not being sure what to do, doing odd jobs here and there and and stuff. Then I thought, well, I might as well do another advert, I suppose. So, yes, but that that yeah. must have been a bit of a that must have been a bit of an existential angst. <laughs> I mean, the members. It was of the a band. bit strange. It was a bit strange. Did you um, did you see it coming? Did was there some sort of oh yes oh, I could no I, yeah. no it sort of developed in the quiet. I mean the thing is as I remember lots of scenes because because uh, when Keith was seeing somebody who was in in the, in the flat in Vauxhall, so he and all the other hoodlums, which was most of them, would all pile back to my flat in Vauxhall, you know, and and they were a really funny bunch of people. And then I do I do remember them all on the top floor of this uh, block of flats about five you know, old victorian slum building that we, um, <clears throat> they're all tempting fate in a long line with their toes on the end of the on the end of the roof with the wind blowing uh, and leaning over as a mass it was a quite extraordinary thing to say and you see and I, and I was quite nervous i was like hey, guys i think you know and then so yes well absolutely they did, they did back off before any of those bottles went over you know but uh um, yeah, you know, I just remember all of these kind of things and Stoker jumping out the, out of the window and then coming around and knocking on the door and everyone thought he'd just gone to the loo and then coming. Um, <laughs> just, just real silly stuff. Uh, and then um, I answered an advert for uh, something in Kensington that seemed a bit snazzy. Uh, so I, I applied for it. And um, it turned out it was the teardrop explodes. And um, it's just a funny thing, but around that time I was working in, I was sort of literally lifting carpet squares in some in Air France in Mayfair for money. You know? And the radio played a couple of times that, that, that day, this really cool song. I was like, brilliant, what's that? But I, because the radio wasn't loud, I didn't really catch it, but I just liked the vibe of it, whatever it was. And I could sort of hear this voice, quite sort of enthusiastic voice. Uh, and then the next day, I heard it again, but I heard it more times. It was on its way to being a hit. It was on about four times in the day, but this time I managed to really turn it up and listen to it. 
Uh, and to my absolute surprise, that was the very band that I was going to go on audition with. I had heard of them. I mean, I knew a couple of the sort of earlier singles, but I'm from John Peel and the yeah. session, you know, whatever. Uh, so I, I, I went and did the, uh, did the audition and uh, it was like I hardly actually ever played any bass at all at that audition. I just went, was upstairs. I was told to go and see this fella on, in the recreation room with the pool table, which was Julian Cope pretending to play pool. Uh, and um, and we just got on, and you know, we just chatted and chatted and chatted about lots of. It was a weird thing because a lot of the stuff that he was into was really like what we were into in Oxford, you know. So there was this musical collections uh, connection, especially, you know, things like, for example, suicide. You asked me the poignant musical moments. I'll never forget in the Oranges and Lemons, St Clements of Oxford in 1978 or nine, whatever it was hearing Shuri Shuri for the first time on that jukebox, um, it just changed the whole kind of atmosphere of the room. It, it just took over and it had a spin to it and it had this brilliant vocal. And uh, I was an instant suicide fan and just bought everything that they did and just listened to it relentlessly. I thought it was brilliant. It's, you know, sort of paranoid horror disco electronic. I love it, you know. Well, it's so sinister, isn't it? Dream Baby Dream is still kind of like, oh, my God. Oh, God, that's so amazing. <laughs> so amazing. I've seen them a million times. And, and, and I can say that, you know, one of the great things about, about the Wooden Tops is it's actually given me the chance to sort of meet my heroes. And uh, Suicide, I've spent quite a lot of time with. Uh, um, I did their sound in Kyoto one night. Um, I, uh, I, I met uh, Alan in... New York several times. Um, we spent lots of time in Japan together and Paris, uh, and I absolutely loved him. You know, there's just this brilliant, fun guy. He was fantastic, and Marty was cool as well. But um, you know, I was I was completely hypnotized by their, their sound. Yes, when I would I would yeah, I'd be hypnotized by everything <clears> about them. Really, they were so cool. But then, so so you're from Oxford. Then you. So how did you sort of learn? Oh to yes, so I'm telling you. That's right about the teardrop explodes. <laughs> yes. So you you play in bass. I, you know you. Haven't... I got I got called for a second audition. I went back, um, and there was just a slight worry about you know something really minuscule on my. Uh, record <laughs> which meant that could there even be a slight possibility that they might have trouble getting me into america would could i be a problem area yeah. uh and yeah. <clears throat> they decided to go with that which is really great because um if i had joined the teardrop explodes uh, i think it i would not have done anything that i've done but interestingly after that uh, the members of the Teardrop Explodes contacted me to go and do some actual playing in a studio with them. Uh, so I went down to to where they all go, Rockfield in Wales, and recorded there with them. Uh, and um, so, you know, for a second day, I was kind of in the B team, you know, <laughs> yes. which was which was cool. Uh, but Julian was a really cool cat. He was telling all people about me. It's like, oh, I know this bass player. You should try it. You should, you know, Adam Ant Centre 
a limousine, a silver limousine to my house, mm-hmm. where it waited, where I, because I wasn't there, to, to the same place in Vauxhall, <laughs> outside the squat, you know. And I did go for an audition with with uh, Adam and, and did I actually. Meet Marco, I, did you meet Marco at this stage? I, he was walking around. My my dad had to take me to it. It's a long story, but I was with my dad for that audition, and he thought that he's my dad just is really interested about things concerning musicians and likes to make kind of you know comments about what what he thinks is going on and right. one of them was oh that that must be that must be the road guy yeah, <laughs> and actually no it's marco <laughs> but i had a sort of really unintentional but sort of it did happen argument with adam uh on that that uh audition so um I didn't want to do it, basically. Yes. But with your bass playing, did you sort of pick up the bass and it kind of come quite quickly to you? Were you a a go-to person for sort of, right, God? I just picked it up and and I did some guitar lessons, which, to be honest, uh, weren't really very serious guitar lessons. There was kind of other things going on. And then uh, I uh, just picked up the bass and just... I don't know. That's, I just kind of really felt it, and right from the beginning. And I think I must have been really liking bass when I was listening to music. I always had an ear out. So, had you listened to people like Barry Adamson and Jar Wobble and think, oh, yes, yeah, amazing, that. amazing Jar Wobble. Ooh, yeah. Yes, and yeah, and, I mean that first Public Image single yeah. again, another another big moment. That pub with the jukebox was full of punks and and stuff. It was a real towny punk pub. Yeah. Uh, the uh, place was full lunchtime on the day that the record shop had the, that release in the shop. It went straight into the jukebox and people came in at lunchtime to hear it. Wow. <laughs> it was like the place was crowded for that record. <laughs> uh, so so but, you had this yeah. little bit of a Liverpool connection with the Teardrop Explode. Then did that lead you to more kind of connections with the Eric scene? It gets really interesting. So... As I say, Julian's telling everyone about me, and uh, he also told a really beginner band in Liverpool that were like really good friends of his, the Wild Swans, they were called. So they wrote me this little handwritten letter, that's how it was. So I received a letter from them, (laughs) and uh, they um, invited me up, and I started going up more. So uh, it was almost that I was now pretty much living there, and... I was in literally the inner circle of the goings on in Liverpool between the teardrop explodes and the Echo and the Bunny Men and all of these people, and very much centered often around um, either Paul Simpson's house, who was uh, the singer for Wild, Wild Swans, or another person would be Pete DeFratis, right. the drummer. And, um, <clears throat> hang on. Yeah, uh, Pete, Pete and I were both non-Liverpudlians, which is an interesting connection that kind of came in useful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Julian was always, always very effervescent and very fun. Uh, Will Sargent's brilliant. Les is brilliant. All these guys, they're just like really brilliant, fun, really nice, friendly guys. Uh so, you know, I was going to, I probably could have stayed there for quite a while. I should probably moved in or something. But the thing is, I had a girlfriend in London, so I wasn't really sure I wanted to do that. Uh, and 
So we recorded the first single for the Wild Swans, which was called Revolutionary Spirit. Oh my God, that is with, such a good with song. Pete playing drums and I'm playing. That's been the bass out on that. Um, there was a compilation, a Cherry Red five CD box set, and that's yeah, all. it's a classic. It really is. I mean, we didn't know it at the time. It was just, I and mean, we toured to promote that, supporting the Bunny Men. Well, who was the guitar? Was that was that Jeremy at the state at that? Stage? Yes, Jeremy Kelly, who did the Lotus Eaters after. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it was again a really fertile place. And again, it just sort of reminded me of the Oxford scene. It, here was the Liverpool scene, and the way that people interacted, and the respect between everybody, and how busy and active everybody was. This was on a bigger scale though than we were in Oxford. We were we were really just trying then, but all of these. People were part of the network of Zoo, yes, which was Bill Drummond uh, and Dave Balfe, who at that time was, I think, probably still playing keyboards in the theatre. Or maybe I don't, I don't remember that. Either, but it was him that I did that session for. Uh, and, and so, um, uh, a really unfortunate thing happened when we were in Glasgow at the Apollo, the notorious Glasgow Apollo, which was my trusty bass was stolen. And uh, of course, Les from the Bunny Men immediately just let let me have one of his to finish the tour with, no problem. Didn't even have to ask. Um, and to finish the tour, uh, we were going to do some more things. We were doing some rehearsals, but I don't know. I just didn't feel it anymore. It wasn't really because the bass had been stolen. I think I was sort of getting a bit sick of doing the journey. And sometimes I get there and people maybe perhaps, you know, because everyone's having a great time, they forgot I was coming. And so I'm like standing in the rain when <laughs> nobody's in. I, I just kind of, you know, and people weren't actually helping me with my train fares and bus fares. It's a long time to sit on a, a National Express all the way to Liverpool. Yeah? Yeah. <clears throat> I got a bit moody. I had a moody patch and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I quit. Uh, and I got this phone call out of the blue from Bill Drummond, like week, weeks later, I'd almost forgotten about it, you know, uh, and asked me whether or not, you know, I had the details of my base because it could be covered in the insurance of the tour. So Bill saw me to a sum of money which paid for the base. Uh, and what I did was buy a slightly cheaper bass and I also bought a little drum machine and a little Casio keyboard that played maybe four or five notes at once, not just the one <clears throat> run on Patrick's. Yes. And, and I, I, I started writing, you know, it was just a weird thing. I just started doing it. I, I think it was that, you know, I found out that you could use a beatbox with microphones in it and a cassette tape and a hi-fi with a cassette player so you could record make noise record it onto the beatbox take the tape out put it in the hi-fi play it quite loud play a new part and the microphones in the tape recorder are hearing everything and recording that swap mm. the tapes over listen to the hiss build up listen to all of the noises that happened outside the window and every take build up but you have an idea you know and <clears throat> good, good grief, hours have gone by and you've just like really be focused. And I think solitude is the big key to writing. You know, you mm -hmm. have to have a bit of solitude. Uh, and um, I started writing and 
out of the blue comes Seb Shelton, the drummer from Secret Affair, who's now indexed Midnight Runners, and they're they're doing Come on Eileen or Come on Eileen, and they're huge. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. And he did drum on that record too. You know, he's a great drummer, but a real pop drummer, a real sort of proper meat and potatoes, swing feel kind of, really accurate kind of drum. Not busy, not jazzy, just the job. You know, <clears throat> and so. It's a funny thing, but he'd lent me a fiver when we were doing the upsets, and and I and I thought, oh, I never gave Seb that fiver back. So I had this day where I felt like doing a cycle ride. So I cycled a really long way up to Archway to give him the fiver back just for a laugh, uh, but to have a ride. And my chain broke on the bike halfway up Archway, so the whole thing became like, you know, biblical. But I did. It's like a pilgrimage, you know. But yes. finally, I, I got to his house, and so he thought that was so funny that that happened. But he couldn't believe that I'd remembered the fiver, so I gave him the fiver. And from that moment on, he thought, you know, there's something is okay about Rolo. You know, he gave me the fiver, but I had forgotten about it. But you know, yeah. Uh, and so when I told him, um, look, I've got some really, really shitty ideas here. Um, they're terrible. I'm just warning you in advance. Uh, but I'd just like to just send them to you. Do you mind? Uh, just see what you say. And that's, it really began at that point. You know, he started doing everything he could to encourage more, including going away on a holiday, getting all his equipment into his flat and having me look after the, the flat for a week whilst they were away and just record, record. And, you know, there's quite a lot of the first batch of songs we played came from that session. My God, uh, and, he's and so trustworthy as well. Track. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he knew, because he, he knew what I was going to do, was just sit in there and do that. Yes. Uh, and, you know, but I was actually getting used to hearing the sound of my own voice. So it, that, you know, uh, and, but then I could also track harmonies because I knew how to do that. Were you quite, a, so at that okay. stage, were you kind of like quite a, whiz, <clears throat> not a whiz kid, but were you somebody that, that had a bit of a spark that, you know, people kind of, um, yes, was both very attractive and sometimes a bit volatile? I'm not aware of it. <laughs> no, I mean, but, but, I just, but obviously, but obviously, he could see yeah. something from your, you know, the upsets that you were, you know, still kind of a player, so to speak, and not like. Oh. Well, he, you know, the volatile and all of that—that that all happens years later. Uh, you know, after we've actually managed to achieve something together. But he was, you know, the person that really encouraged me. And you know, when there's no audience, you, you, it's like whatever audience you have which is basically just him <laughs> you know i want i want to make sure he feels you know happy you know you're trying to impress the admins aren't you sort of thing so i really really wanted him to like it so i did my best to make it shitty and in some kind of a good way at least <laughs> obviously the guy had tried you know yes uh, but he kept coming back more and saying with ideas about you know he started s slipping back into that management role and starting to sort of make noises about maybe getting into something with me, you know, but I, I, I'm off on tour now, so he'd be gone for months. You know. But yes. he'd, he'd leave me a little project like, you know, you're going to need a, a, a video maybe, because it was maybe just me on my own, yeah? So mm -hmm. maybe you need a video or something. Uh, so we made a video. I, I, I called on my extremely arty friends and and uh we uh blacked out the studio we painted it all black there was a ladder with the light on and i wore these kind of stripy trousers and nothing else and basically rolled around on the floor uh to the music and then 
uh, and then you know did that kind of velvet underground style thing where you've got like an image projected over you and there you are and it's like how long can you how long do you need to stare at it before you <laughs> see the artist ah oh, there he is he's there you know um but but it looked great it looked really good and um so uh it was kind of electro pop so the wooden top started as electro pop yeah yeah but then the next thing the next project he left me with was you know what? I think you should start a band. I think that's what you should do. Goodbye. I've got to go off on tour now. You know, so <laughs> off, off, he, off he went. Yes. And so I phoned up. The first thing I did was call on my Oxford mates because, you know, so I called up Simon. He was at university in Bristol. So I started going to see Simon with all, all the shitty tunes and Simon started playing guitar. And then it's sort of like, the, you know, there we go. Now the delusion is three people that it's with. Yes. Uh, and uh, and then um, uh, Alice from Jazz Butcher sort of came in as well. She moved from Northampton to London, fancied a laugh, so she did the, some keys. And uh, um, and then I found a, a, a bass player. But I also found a really good drummer, and that is really just so important. Uh, I found a fellow called Paul Hookham who also did backing vocals. So. And Simon could sing as well. So suddenly it started to really come together and it was gigs in, in kind of art houses, like the studio I filmed in when they had nights, uh, little private parties. And then we did we did um, a kind of battle of the bands in, in, in Brixton at the Loughborough Hotel, which is an amazing place. I'm really glad I played there like, in my life. Yes. I played at the Loughborough Hotel. Uh, and it was we were all on different levels, like on the 60s TV set. Um, and actually, the people that were running it were also in the band that won. <laughs> <laughs> Handy. But we came second. We came second. And you know what? It was the first time it really worked. Uh, and um, basically, we played our sets. They did the results. Our, our, we were, at the time, we were called the Rooftop Six. We were, right. the, rooftop, we were the Rooftop Six. And... Uh, uh, rooftop six second and hooray, everybody cried so we went up and we 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 went up and played one more song yeah so we went and played move me but we played it like we do in the rehearsal room which is uh because also we had this rehearsal room in battersea in this new warehouse that all our friends had opened up so we actually had our own rehearsal room which belonged to a cool chap called roger artist called roger uh, but it ended up being ours. But anyway, at this point, we're sharing it with people, but it's our home, it's our spiritual home. And we would just let things play on, you know, proper extended mix style. That's how we rehearse, just to get that, get until all of our legs were going and we, it wasn't right, until we were just freely feeling it and dancing with it. So we did move me in that style for that encore. And Jesus, I mean, people were, were dancing all the way back to the hall. It was just the whole place is just vibrating. You know, wow. You know, so that uh, that was the beginning of it. And um, Seb uh, came back from his tour and he came and saw us somewhere, was it? I think it was the Covent Garden, Rock Garden. We'd had a couple of uh, people help us a little bit, like Peter Kent, who is from kind of the Bauhaus camp. Uh, and the associates he, he sort of was trying to help get us some gigs maybe uh seb came along uh and uh he said okay um 
we'll have a chat soon. I'll meet you. I'll meet you on on our famous park bench in Soho Square, uh, and we'll have a chat. So I did. I met him, uh, and he said, "Okay, so what would you say if I said um, I'm going to quit Dex's Midnight Runners and manage you? Are you are you serious enough about what you're?" you're doing like I think you are but are you for me to do that and, and I just said well I, th- I think anybody would say you're out of your mind <laughs> yeah that's kind of and he said no he said no he said you know I mean you know I've, I've got it all planned out in my head I can do some part-time work you know I could I've got an idea I could maybe work at rough trade in the office there stuff and you know I, I'd like to do it so um you know it Kevin Rowland uh, Seb was Kevin's like right hand man I did it again you know yes you um you got, <laughs> got, took, took, his, took his sergeant away you know uh and um so uh yeah so Seb started managing and the first person to put any money in was Bill Drummond at Zoo Music so it all kind of kind of comes back to that Liverpool thing, doesn't it? How it all came in. Like Bill Drummond is the first person to invest money into the wooden tops. Without him having got me that base, it would never have happened that maybe I'd uh, written. Yes. It's just great. Uh, it's a and, great story, uh, yes, because I think also, if, oh God, I'm not complete. I think he had that some sort of publishing thing to do with the Lotus Eaters and First Pictures of You. Which I don't know if you did. I don't know if, 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 if the Lotus Eaters were published by Zoo Warners, but they could have been. Uh, most of us were. I was. I mean, you know, my first publishing deal was Zoo Warners. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And I could equip a band. I could equip a band, and then suddenly we, 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 with Seb's complete like uh, focus, we were getting more gigs. And then actually, the big breakthrough was, you know, it's like partly it's being ready for it when it happens, but it's also being aware that no matter how hard you try, a bit of luck is what's needed just to spark the 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 detonator you know and and uh that was he was working in rough trade part-time and he answered the phone from the bbc who wanted the smiths and uh the smiths were way busy for whatever it was they wanted like a john peel session they were away they couldn't do it and in desperation the the bbc it was it, it could have been john waters i don't know who it was in desperation the person said well have you got anything else <laughs> And, you and he's asking the wooden tops manager, uh, and so the wooden tops manager does what a manager does and said, "Well, you know, there's a new band called well, that'll do." <laughs> <laughs> I think that's how David Bowie got on, you know, doing his Starman, didn't he? I think he there was a gap, and someone said, "Right, David, drop everything. You've got to go and do Top of the Pops now." So I think because what the other thing that I've noticed or heard from various people is all about timing. You know, timing is kind of like. You were and you were kind of at the right place at the right time as well with that kind of rise because you'd we'd had sort of the the punk period and the that post punk period but then that kind of early eighties I suppose there was a lot of new romantics in the goth scene but it was kind of eighty eighty three suddenly the Smiths appeared and suddenly indie became for five years wow well, I don't know where we're at we were in some kind of uh, a psychobilly uh, folkabilly punkabilly kind of uh very fast banging tribal drums kind of um we were in our own little 
tiny little niche you know, <laughs> of, of 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 but but the thing that we did do is i know it sounds so cheesy but we let it groove a lot you know once we realize that's the key to it is not to just like chop them up with your wicked arrangements it's just like really let it breathe and just let time soak into it so the madness really <laughs> really comes out you know and uh that's what we're about and and but that period was kind of there was also a honeymoon period in that that period of the 80s for the next five years until obviously <laughs> rough trade goes kind of lightly arse up but you know there was all those kind of bands like Bogshed and Stump and Big Flame and then Frank Chickens and then you had the Bundu Boys and Gregory Isaacs and Sly and Robbie you know we had John Peel. just say that it's just like a, a great list of people just came out of your, your <laughs> mouth <laughs> but, but you know your there was just that kind of Adrian Sherwood and On You Sounds and yeah and it was just like, yeah. so there wasn't like India as in just yeah. like the Smiths, but it was like, there was this kind of like opening of like, okay, five years of honeymoon and rough trade can't do any wrong. And everyone thinks they're going to be wonderful. And everything's just, you know, Alan McGee, Creation Records, The Living Room, you know, Glass Records. You know, we had all these kind of the Vindaloo records with Robert, you know, Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales and We've Got a Fuzz Box. And it was like, yeah, you don't, you can't play your instruments, but that doesn't mind. Have you? So, you know. Out this period, I mean, if you went out a lot, if you if you if you really like going into West End and you really like going out to Camden and you really like going to wherever just to see stuff and be part of it and watch stuff, especially if you're lucky because you sort of got in a little bit, you got your foot in the door, so actually you can get into lots of things kind of free <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because maybe you know somebody or, or whatever, uh, and you know all those incredible gigs. So, funnily enough, one that's really it's a, just a tiny tad later, but um, I had a flatmate uh, who, who sang for the Passions, uh, Barbara, and I'd sometimes go and see things she was doing. Like I remember seeing, I think possibly Echo and the Bunnymen might have been the first time I saw that. No, 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 no. Uh, but I did see the Sugar Cubes, uh, and I'm sure it was with with the Passions. I'm sure it was the Sugar Cubes, and they were like bottom of the bill. They were just this like really baby band, and they all shambled on the stage. And I I remember, I just remember how everything they did was kind of really kind of linked to what had been going, you know, like the chorus bass sound and the kind of sort of mutant funk or from birthday party through to all of this kind of, it was in their sound. And then, you know, Ina's wickedly strange horn that he mm. played was great. The sort of vocal thing was really good fun. Uh, and then, but you sort of saw it as like kind of, I don't know, like, um, not commercial music, but kind of like almost sort of scene, scenic music. You know, it was cooler. Uh, and then, bam, in the middle of it, they did that song, Birthday, and everybody in that room knew it. Yeah. I just don't know what it was about that simple little song. It just so suited her voice, but everything around it, like the way it starts, it's got all of their ideas is all in one song, but then with this like blinding explosion in the middle of it, which is that, that call. And I mean, wow. I remember that. Yeah, uh, and, 
But yeah, also, uh, the other thing what was quite amazing in that period, you know, was the gatekeepers. You know, there was three weekly music papers, you know, Sans, Enemy, Melody Baker, plus Record Mirror. They all had like huge circulations. You know, you had John Peel, you had the two which were kind of promoting quite a few obscure, really obscure bands like Terry and Jerry and Twisted Sister, obviously, and uh, lots of bands that you went, well, God, you just got huge exposure. You didn't have just Top of the Pops. And every like city and town in the UK, which is a small little place, isn't it, you know, has an alternative in night so you can kind of get that little circuit and play in front of yeah. complete strangers rather than just your normal friends so I think it kind yeah. of encouraged a certain sense of kind of well it doesn't matter what does we you know the well it's just like really fun really fun things like everyone was putting out 45s and using John Bull stamps to to put the name of the record or the name of the band on or those kind of like things we, we all did them and sending them into to John Peel and everything you know uh, and um, and there he was. He was like a, a service that seemed to somehow listen to all of that stuff that came to him. That somehow, maybe he had more helpers than we knew. But however, his filter system worked. He really heard stuff and would play it. You know. So, um, well, I always remember the first time he played a track from Yo Bum Rush the Show from Public Enemy or LL Cool J. Jay or um, I think that or Tila Rock all those kind of early rap bands you know and hip-hop bands were just like oh my god what's this this is like amazing I must go and buy it so it was kind of you know he just gave us this he kind of felt his oh you're like as live and direct <laughs> you're like burning spirits oh fair enough Slime. yeah you know it was like he just gave it all that kind of stuff but he mixed it with all the indie stuff and death rock you know death metal and Bulgarian folk music you know and it was just it's stunning you know it was just amazing kind of you know it was just very handy basically wasn't it <laughs> yeah it's an incredible incredible um uh, <clears throat> uh sort of contribution that he made to yes, the yes it yeah. was it was a huge really. contribution <laughs> but but when did the wooden tops then become the wooden tops and then you started to sort of get your you know on the label yeah we we uh we we had a discussion one day about we we need a serious name <laughs> and you know the idea of a serious name to us a lot is basically let's think of an anti-name <laughs> and um <clears throat> the funny thing about the anti-name with the wooden tops was it sounded quite sort of naff in uk but it sounded brilliant everywhere else and it was chosen because a we looked a bit like puppets when we were playing, right? Uh, we were of the 60s generation and that was the shit they gave us. And it means an idiot and it means a person in the police force and it also means an acoustic guitar. It's a slang for it. It's got all of these little reasons going for it and it just suited us at that time because i don't think we would i i know we've got i don't think at that point we really had like much of an ambition i think ambition grows a bit the more you do it the the, the kind of the places you play the the first time you have like a good pump in front of a, a massive you know a good crowd of people and then you know trying to yeah you know so i don't think we had really that kind of sort of ambition but i think it, it was just there without us knowing it yeah. um <clears throat> uh so uh yeah as i say we had this room in um uh battersea 
and we we went there like it was our day job. We went there every day in like what was it, probably 1983, uh, and uh, we were in there for nearly a whole year just playing possibly maybe that's an exaggeration maybe sort of six seven months uh and we would take the occasional outing to see how it felt in front of people and then run with their heads down back to the rehearsal room uh and um and we just literally taught ourselves to be able to play and sing at the same time that was a real stumbling block was being, okay you could play the riff but can you sing at the same time uh, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and also I was getting used to the fact that I was the singer so that was weird uh, and I was playing acoustic guitar which was weird so there was a lot for me to kind of get used to but we had just enough little moments of hearing it work to sort of realize that maybe it could you know if we carried on hammering away we drove everybody crazy um in fact, I think the song Why, Why, Why nearly got us kicked out of that room because that was a little bit later. And uh, that was a, that a really hard one to play and sing the chorus of at the same time. There's just something really itchy about it that just makes you get it wrong every time. So that we would play, we literally played that for like an hour and a half nonstop, just the chorus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going through going through waves of laughing at how ridiculous it was that we were doing that to noticing it was slipping or somebody was going, somebody was, you know, we, until, until we had it. Um, and that was the moment where all of the inhabitants of uh, the studios that we were in, it was like an old printing shop with had three floors on either side, uh, like a little factory building uh, and a little self-contained flat in there. And yeah, there was a sculptor, there was an artist, there was something that actually a bit later became, oh, it was an apartment, but it became a yoga room. And then there was our room and then there was someone actually lived above our room, but they were cool with noise. And it was, you know, we tried to soundproof it. Uh, um, and we, in the end, you know, we had a, we had a, um, a curfew arrangement with the neighbors of 11 o'clock and we never went over it. Um, and actually, the only person who did was was Pete DeFreitas, actually, when he started his band. And uh, that's another story. He, he, he would come and play. But uh, his brother, that's a funny thing. Also from the Teardrop Explodes connection, uh, we got short of a bass player. Um, and uh, I think it was Dave Balfe found out about it and mentioned it. And uh, Pete said, oh, what about my brother, Frank? So... Frank came along and auditioned and was great and we loved him. So he was really young and, and he, he joined the Wooden Tops really early on. So, uh, as you know, we're kind of it was, there, there was quite a based. Yeah, it was a very Pete frame kind of need there, isn't there? Did, Pete, mm. did he also have sisters who were in a band called The Heartthrobs later on? God, uh, I think they were probably already cracking away at it then. Yeah, there was Rosie and oh, Rachel. Oh, that's it. Rosie and Rachel in a band with the heartthrobs, yes. Yeah. God, that's quite a something, isn't it? And then, I mean, because the energy that you you sort of project at this stage is quite ferocious. I mean, this is this is a young this is a young man with a lot of energy. I mean, how did you manage to sort of you must have put so much of yourself into performing these songs because it was kind of at 100 miles an hour, wasn't it? Did you sort of, um, did that slightly over the years begin to um, take it out of you, so to speak, physically and emotionally, spiritually? Uh, 
no <laughs> it felt like you'd had a really good swim or something you come you feel like oh thank god i did that you know it was just kind of like what it was just like a you know the alarm bell would go and we have to like go onto the stage and just start and and it would just always it would just always happen uh i think it was because actually the the beat that we used a lot the hypno beat that that sounds it works at really high tempo it's 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 kind of nice slow but it's funny it just really hits the spot it's it's like drum and bass basically i think i think we were sort of kind of doing rolling drum and bass but we didn't know it. but you know it's your uh, first single plenty this is on food records isn't it with david bell yeah which was must have been his early years and i think that's that's round about the point that um i mean i did play the bass on that but i think frank came in just after that yeah he's frank plays or move me the single after that Yes, and then you signed to Rough Trade. So was this kind of the the label that you were desperate to be on, or did you have other people sort of being, you know, kind of interested in the band? No, we had some interesting offers, uh, but like Seb was working at Rough Trade, and, um, you know, absolutely trust Seb. Uh, And um, also, to be honest, the other options were interesting, but they just didn't have the basement that Rough Trade had. Rough Trade had the most interesting basement of records and, you know, loved just about all of them. So uh, it, it couldn't be anyone else that, but Rough Trade at that point in time. We, we weren't really thinking about bi- the business. Uh, no. <laughs> Seb was, but Seb was. But, you know, the, the Rough Trade appeared to be able to have hits if they if they'd given them, so... Uh, you know, the Smiths did so, you know, from that point of view, there was hope. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, no, they, they were the sort of the, the, the band, they were the kind of hip label. I know there was other labels, but they, you know, having the Smiths was always just going to give everybody, give them that edge, wasn't it really, you know? Yeah. Was... Yeah. I mean, uh, the Smiths were actually uh, the very first person to take us out on tour, bless his heart, Julian Cope on his comeback tour after the teardrops had been closed down for some time, his first tour, he invited us to do it. And, uh, had he done, was that around world shut your mouth? No, it was, I think it, it no, I think it was before that. Um, sheesh, I don't know which, which, which album it was. Um, I'd oh, have to there's, look that there's up. ones like fried, isn't there? There's when yeah, that, that's it's the one where we, when we did Hammersmith Palais, he cut himself up with the mic, mic stand. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is partly my fault, really, because <laughs> um, I don't know. The wooden tops exploded that night, and we were more on fire than we'd ever been. That was the first night that we really just did it you know um and um i think it was a little bit threatening um and uh so julian really had to pull the extra stops out that night but uh it kind of was sort of you know you know we saw it it's like once you've seen it you've seen it and now you want you want to see it again um and so so we 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 toured with a few people we toured with um the smiths came yeah the smiths came after julian uh so we toured with smiths for what was supposed to be about a six day seven day something like that tour i'm not sure something like that uh and i think we were booted off on about night four uh i can't remember which night it was but it could have possibly been after cardiff but it was 
um, that uh, all the flowers had been thrown before they come. <laughs> I mean, you know, we were just starting to really just become better and better and better. You know, I would say that actually there was probably an amount of energy and enthusiasm that came from us that really helped, which you can't hear on a live tape because listening to the live tapes, we weren't that great. And I think, I think, you know, I think maybe Johnny said, oh yeah, but they're not so good live. But actually we were doing it. And credit where credit is due, the, the Smiths were really, really cool guys. They were really nice to us. And Johnny was brilliant. And Johnny was sort of, annoying annoying uh morrissey with with a copy of our first single and saying you know we we, we better sharpen up mate you know it's like that <laughs> uh so i think already morrissey's irritated by me and um and then you know some of the shows like that one in cardiff that was another really good one um and some really stupid little thing happened it was that the person that was driving them dave harper Love Dave Harper. Dave Harper had been driving us and been our tour manager-ish from Rough Trade, and we always went with with Dave. We loved Dave, and Dave had this like really old Mercedes, you know, like cream-coloured Mercedes Benz, and the Smiths were in that, and he was driving, and um, we were late, so we were in Seb's car, it's like a GTI or whatever, all squeezed in there, like zooming up to the next venue, and and then we saw Dave's car, so we were just almost. Uh, alongside them and uh um johnny looks up and goes yeah hi like that right and then i think the other boys in the back like yeah, yeah and then you know sometimes on the motorway just 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 little funny little movements can happen to your car yeah. i think our car just sort of just slightly moved in a bit but but not 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 anywhere near to worry you but just a little bit at that exact moment morrissey opened his eyes and he looked at me and and that little undulation happened and he was horrified you know now we were just like crazy people and uh, <laughs> you know so we waited and we went to the next venue i forget which one it was uh and i was summoned to see headmaster who basically you know saying you know you're off the tour you know do tonight and then and then you're off and so he threw us off the tour um and it was funny there was like a, a little interview that was done underneath the stage and uh one of the, i was with alice and she said something like oh well we've been thrown off the tour now anyway and then the journalist picked up on that and said said why and she said well it's not as if we'd like you know put a cigarette bomb underneath the stage and tried to blow them up or anything you know just like a silly little comment and it was written as Wooden Tops kicked off Smith's tour for for putting cigarette bomb under stage, and, and you know what? We never we we, we just kept getting asked about that for like decades. I'd say you know no, no. That, that was just like a, a silly joke, you know, a stupid joke. But anyway, um, yeah. So we we that that was followed by everything but the girl tour, by which time. Actually, the original drummer, um, uh, Paul, had quit and joined the Redskins. He'd sort of decided, bless him, because I did love him, but he blessed bless him, he sort of decided I wasn't political enough for him. So he <laughs> too posh. He, he left. And, 
And so um, we had a couple of gigs where uh, June Miles Kingston from um, Funboy 3 and Communard sat in playing drums for a bit. And, uh, and then somebody else that we knew suggested we try out this fellow. I mean, we actually had tried quite a few people and were getting a bit depressed and beginning to think, actually, the party's over. Was, yes. We had a little moment of worry there. <laughs> and, and then so this guy, this guy gets in touch and uh, uh, he's, play, he's played Move Me. And I think he was played well, well, well. And he just sort of thought, no, it was Move Me. He thought, I have some of that. So he came to audition and and there was this guy, like a boxer, like a small little boxer, standing there, uh, leaning against the wall, watching us rehearse. And then June got out behind the kit and said, you know, I think um, I think I should uh, take a rest now. Let Benny have a play, you know. So Benny came in and the first thing he did was rearrange the kit and just stand there. Like... Holy shit! He plays standing up. Yes, and, Jim Slim. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and he was he was in immediately. He was so, I mean, that rehearsal was just an explosion of drums, and uh, and he was brilliant. He was great to watch, and he was just really fun. And actually, that really sh- changed the shape of the band because suddenly I bonded with him really, really quickly, uh, and. Um, I, I don't know what it was. Maybe because, yeah, no, I just did. It just was an instant click with 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 Benny, and uh, it also due to that relationship between my acoustic guitar, the way it sits in with various elements of his drum kit and his playing, uh, we together were brothers in rhythm, and that would that was the point where it all did start getting faster, because it just felt more comfortable than, than, like that to us and yes. it did get to insane insane speeds that was just like yep we really were the fastest band in the world but actually that was too fast you know it was where it got to at the end of it and you know we we pulled it back a bit we realized we were just becoming speed freaks for the you know it, come on. uh uh there's a little sweet spot where everybody dances and then you go a little bit more and then it starts to turn into a mosh pit yes that's yeah. that's not good is it <laughs> not well yeah, so we had Mosh Pit in the early 80s and then sort of 85 when I said be a bit psychobilly kind of thing, we had that and then it sort of developed and became there was more females there that felt a bit safer, like they weren't going to get like an elbow or something. It got pieced up there in the Mosh Pit and then it sort of got to the point where people were actually dancing in the Mosh Pit and, and you know, without knowing it, we had the first crossover Balearic dance hit in Ibiza that that started everything I'm not saying I started it but I'm saying that record is one of the pivotal ones at the beginning of that scene yes um, well, so, absolutely I know there was, yeah. there was there was a label wasn't it I think it was Brian Carter Music BCM which had lots of these kind of fantastic just the singles and they put them all together there was real wild I don't know, it was the E pop song, Will, Will, Real Wild Child. I can remember they were just, the, and everything had a big piano, didn't it? I remember that was the period, wasn't it? The Balearic yeah. piano bit. Or was that Italian Well, house? sort of. It was of, a bit um, tricky, wasn't That was it? that bit Italian house. <laughs> it um, Italian it's just house. sort of, well, the YYY tune was played, the, the Adrian Sherwood mix that was much more laid back and reggae style, uh, more Afrobeat, in fact. Uh, that uh, That got, played in relaxed outdoor areas in Ibiza and was like sort of 
pretty much all around the island as a sort of a bit of a funky chill out tune. Yes. And uh, Leo Mass and DJ Alfredo went on a record shopping trip where they went, they went uh, with Leo, went shopping around Italy and they saw the live album had just come out and they were like, oh, that, that's that YYY band, isn't it? And everything. And they picked it up and they bought it. Uh, and when they got it back and checked it out and they listened to the YYY on that, the live version, it had changed and it had got faster. Uh, but it had also swapped a couple of, parts around and had gone sort of flamenco at the start but then it had this kind of percussion that it's all in it's all in the original but it's just in slightly different order on that the way we played it and and much more up tempo and um they just spotted it right away they started playing it and the funny thing is, is that even though I was in the studio when that was mixed I was there with the big speakers and everything when I hear that live version on an, an actual club system with all that enhanced punchy bass, there's kind of another bass line I never really noticed, which is from the thump of the kick drum, but somehow integrated integrated with the actual bass. It puts in these other notes, and wow! And that's that's what what really just like really rocked and. I'd go to clubs and I just couldn't believe they would play it because everything was so kind of electronic and really tight. And then next thing you know, it's a wooden tops gig. It's like live, hooray. And everyone's just going mad. Yes. And then it sort of goes back to, to, to you know, I mean, it blew my mind. The first time I actually saw that was at a shum at a YMCA and it came on and I, I just kind of, kind of locked myself in the loo for a minute you know it was just too strange it was too and I was listening it through the wall and it was through the wall I heard the new bass line so then I went back out and, and listened to it and you know I just couldn't believe all these people just going to it was just like a wooden tops crowd Excellent. you know we have we have a very joyous kind of a crowd and there it was um and then I couldn't I couldn't escape to nightclubs anymore and enjoy the kind of anonymity of them no, no, you, you, yeah. you that one. But, but I could get him free. Yes, this is, this is important. What was your memory of Recording Giant then? This is kind of the album that comes out in 86. Is this a kind of a honeymoon period for the band at this stage? It's the first time that we're under pressure to, to uh, behave ourselves. Um, and um, we have a, a series of rehearsals with um, the producer sitting in with his notepad asking us to play things over again and can we try swapping this bit with that bit and oh you know what when it goes there I think it needs another something and uh just being really kind of musical overseer of what we were doing um and also uh an impatient person what well, he, he is patient but up to a certain point he's aware of the budget and how how it must not go over budget because if it goes out over budget then he becomes under budget you know so mm. do you not know, do you know I mean he's got to really keep an eye and you know we're obviously um a bunch of funsters but we do want to get it good you know and we're starting to now work with uh like click tracks he's getting really strict on us and you know um it was going really well. I mean, I can't, I can't say anything uh, uh, bad about that build-up to when we began recording. Um, the, the pressure showed itself in other ways, uh, like, for example, um, 
he was really touchy about about how much time it would take for a musician to do this or that and then you know if that musician was going to take quite a long time then maybe he should bring one of his mates in to quickly cover that it would sound the same don't worry but it'll take 10 minutes and all you know like, uh, so i started kind of getting quite confrontational with with bob and i dearly love bob and i'm sadly i went to his funeral just recently uh, and um, it became a real proper production where there is that tension between the producer and you, the artist, trying to get what you want with your people doing it the way you want it. Yes. Um, and for that reason, there was tension. But, you know, I don't want it to make it sound like that's actually how it was, because there was a hell of a lot of laughter and real pleasure at what we'd done. And, you know, being you know, because I tell you what, when we had the rough mixes uh, ready to go and be final mixed, the rough mixes were just so incredible. You know, there were a couple of session player moments, but they were sort of quite back in, in the mix. Uh, it was so tight and it was so pumping and the acoustic, I mean, just everything. Oh my God. That I, I, I just remember listening and orgasming to those, those, those rough <laughs> demos, I, those rough mixes. I was really looking forward to it sounding even better than that. But we weren't allowed to go to the final mixes because, you know, that kind of a producer doesn't want, A, people trying to hear themselves louder, B, people just sticking their oar in, and, you know, they just want complete freedom to do what they want and, and then present it because they're the guys. That's why they've been paid, so, yes. you know. Fuck off. So, you know, we, <laughs> so we were, we, you know, I tried trying to, trying to pretend it wasn't happening, you know, but anyway, we did go and listen to it. And when we heard it back, we heard it on the big speakers and, oh, it sounded very bright. All of the session stuff was really damn loud. All his mates were really loud. And, um, <laughs> and so was my voice. My voice was like Donny Osmond record, you know, it was so loud. It was pop. It was like, it wasn't like a kind of you know charges the light brigade every time we got we played it was like um it was it was um this it was pop it was it was you know i remember once sort of fast forwarding and rewinding the cassette tape of it to try and find to find a, a song and switching it on was at the spot and god it sounded just like the entire osmond family it was just all the, you know um but what I didn't realize at the time is that it, it sort of the base end of it was quite back because at that time in the eighties, everything was quite sort of thin and really leaping out the radio. It was very hi-fi. It was very, you know, SSL or Neva. It was just like very well recorded. Uh, engineers were amazing. I mean, the engineer on giant John Gallon. Oh my gosh. Was he amazing? You know, so, so was John Lecky before, you know, they just, they've got all of these old school, skills that to be honest are not that different some of them to what djs have which is syncing music up dropping music in getting the tempo exactly right sitting it me you know the story of how in bohemian rhapsody they wore the tape out recording the vocals well yeah you can do that but then you can dump it onto another tape and then drop it back onto the tape so you know just the skill is like Delia Derbyshire's skill, you know, just yes, dropping stuff in. So impressive. I mean, I loved watching all of those processes and all of the things we could now now do with electronics. Like for a start, we recorded all with the Lindrum. We used the Lindrum, and then 
later, after lots of parts are down, Benny went in and replaced the drums of the of the Lindrum uh, with the human snare and stuff. And if there was one snare that was too out that annoyed uh, Bob, he'd have to go back and drop that snare in, you know. And <laughs> I just love the meticulousness of it. It was so intense. It's like, yeah, it's like Pink Floyd Abbey Road, you know, like everything is done in an old school way. It was just really exciting to see it all work. So the mixes that came out, I was a little bit disappointed because I just didn't think it was like hard enough. But, you know, uh, you know, can you imagine it was like good, good, good thing is a very sweet song that was chosen as the, as the single from the album. And sure enough, it sounded like Simon and Garfunkel on the radio. It, it did sound really beautiful. But then, mm. you know, I had to fight tooth and nail, as they say, to get the second half, the build-up that happens at the end of the song. It would have actually stopped before that bit if some people had had their way, but I just had to scream and squeal and, and stamp my little feet to make sure that that second half was there. Um, and then, of course, one of the one of the deep loves of being in the wooden tops is, is getting remixes done. So it was almost like as soon as we heard it, like, right, to the remixes, you know, <laughs> and getting the 12 inches going and, and getting the club the club versions out. Yes. Uh, because that, you know, that didn't happen at the end of the 80s. That happened all the way through the 80s. We're, we were all really looking for that club floor version, making that club for if we, somebody else to do it or we did it. Well, you know, at the time, was... I suppose we had Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Trevor Horn and that kind of world, wasn't there? The 12 inch yeah. single was kind of coming out and it was really a thing, wasn't it? Clubs all over the place, you know, sort of from, you know, the Barracuda through to the, the goth clubs, the Batcave through to, you know, there was just tons of it in London. And of course, the WAG, you know, so yes. um, I've left about 400 out, but, you know, it's like... So... Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Did you ever go to Alice in Wonderland? That, I believe, was in Shoreditch. Yes, possibly. I think he did a book recently. Yes. So anyway, the experience then, this is 86. This is a golden year for music, by the way. I mean, you know, we had, I think, Paul Simon, the Bundy Boys album came out, Shabina. <laughs> Susan Vega got her fantastic first album, which I, I still think is great. And just all yes, this kind of music. So did you, I mean, did it feel like you were at a zeitgeist moment or was were you feeling a bit creatively... Like like the Smiths, that first album they put together, which John Porter had to come in and say, oh, shit, this is sounding terrible. I better, I need to re-record it because it's just not good. Um, I think Troy Tate, Troy Tate from Teardrops was the first person to record them. Right. And then John yeah, he, Porter... He, he had thought, a go. He had a go, didn't he? And Jim, John Porter said, yeah, this mm. is not good, is it? I better, we, we need more money. Yeah. There's also somebody else, isn't there? But anyway, uh, yeah, um... No, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I had probably a body of about like, like <laughs> about thirteen songs, something like that, fourteen songs, and um, uh, and when we recorded Giant, and we'd uh, maybe a bit more, maybe about like fourteen or fifteen, so we'd recorded all the singles and all the tracks on the other side. Uh, and then we recorded Giant, and I had like not one song, <laughs> not one. Everything had gone. I just I, I had not one new song. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, but but the difference b between those cursy early days was um, I had all the time in the world to to put songs together and to fiddle around with the words and just to to 
to decide and define you know the character for what they were about whatever they were all they were all associated with kind of real life things always otherwise i couldn't really if it wasn't sort of real i wasn't that kind of fantasy singer i'm you know studio booth but i still have to have that reality factor that, that i can you know it has to be really personal i can't sing anybody else's song i mean i'll try yes. i can't do it yeah i'm useless at someone else's song uh whoever they are. I mean, when David Bowie died, I had to do do um, one of his songs. I think it was Starman. And I really had it well in rehearsal. It sounded great. In fact, I thought, hey, you know what? I'm a really good person to ask to do this. And then once all the people with in front front of me, you know, I, I kind of, it just went out the window. I, I did fine on the first verse. The second verse just like blocked straight out of my mind. The second verse, I, I was like going for my piece of paper just, just to see a word to remind myself. And everybody knows those songs word by word, especially all the girls, you know. But but I'm not David, you see. So, um, yes, it's not gonna uh, yeah, and then the, the really great thing was that they all sang it anyway. So then you, and then I came back in where I knew I was. It was I sort of almost pretended like I'd done it on purpose, but I hadn't. I, I blanked because I'm not that character. I'm not in that character. If I am in that character, I know where I am. But you know, David Bowie is David Bowie. He's nobody else. I, you, I know God, I'd sound like a loony dunno, but I'm not a cover singer. Yeah, I'm, no, sorry, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm not looking at from you, looking at you through the, through the internet as if to say, so don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I try, but it just is a disaster every time. Um, so, uh, so I had to. I, I, so yeah, I was told. Um, so I guess it was uh, December, and everybody had toured giant worldwide. We'd 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 made deals whereby we would instead of having a day off, we'd make it a travel day. And this is the, the great magic of our management was still Seb, of course, um, that we could do these deals with agency and management, everything whereby, okay, we sweat it a bit and not have a day off. Maybe we'd travel or we'd do a gig instead of having a day off. And we added up credits. And at the end of the tour, of that branch of the tour, if we were somewhere really cool, like, uh, I don't know, Porto or, or um, Rome or uh, Japan and Tokyo, uh, Kyoto, uh, Kyoto as well. Uh, and um, whoever wanted to stay a few days could stay a few days and we'd, we'd get like all expenses paid, uh, stay, well, obviously our own pocket money and everything and then fly back a bit later because we'd, we'd made life a lot easier and saved a load of money earlier on in the year. So, you know, we did things like that, which is some people just want to go home. You know, some of the crew would just go on. Thanks, but no thanks. So, you know, it would end up being the hardcore kind of. Uh, yes. Yes, this is true. Uh, and yeah, so that that was a really great thing that the management did for us. And. Um, uh, so. I had to march. The studio was booked in March, so I had three months to write a complete album uh and i also had to pass my driving test uh because i decided i was going to do that so i i had done some driving lessons and i thought i could just do it and write an album at the same time and uh i really don't know how i did pass my driving test because there were times where i was asked to pull over not not the actual test but during the lessons should pull over to the side and just just calm down for a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, fine. It's just that you've got the windscreen wipers going and all the lights going and, and everything. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> so I think he thought that I wasn't going to pass my test, but you know what? I did. I, I did pass my driving test. But um, I was just full-on caveman writer in, in the studio in Battersea. I, I was there all day, every day, most of the night, just writing and writing and writing. Uh, and um i don't necessarily know where inspiration was coming from it was literally by just hammering away hammering away would would create something which would start to start and you were onto something and there was plenty of ideas that fell by the wayside but um yeah so um i do feel um, in in retrospect a little guilty that the second album was only 35 minutes long i actually didn't realize that that at the time maybe one more song would have been great um and um I had embraced technology totally. So I was programming the drums. I, I had my own Lindrum. In fact, I had that Lindrum hired for me and I completely forgot it was hired for me. And at the end of the, at the end of the eighties, sort of very early in the nineties, I was one day called upon to return the Lindrum and I just thought it was mine. <laughs> I had to return it, but it was such a trusted, trusted beast. It got me through that album, you know, uh, and, uh, um, sort of handheld samplers not worrying about sequencing it and stuff just playing it by hand over a really tight beat and just uh um jamming away jamming away and then and then um i had it you know i did it i just yes. couldn't believe it you know i had, had had an album there was some 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 good stuff on it and um there's only one track on it that I sort of feel like is maybe not so great, but I should be pretty pleased with it, you know, but it, it was, it was a difficult one because now we were using an American producer. We had uh, Scott Litt who, who was doing REM and stuff like that. He also had worked extensively with like Nile, Nile Rogers and stuff like that. So that's one of the reasons that we, and he was like a, a good disco rock crossover guy, really brilliant fun bloke. So, you know, I got sent over, and and also uh, the American record company had. Um, this was the first thing that they were investing in. They, uh, uh, Rough Trade signed us to CBS in uh, uh, Columbia, in America, which was a, a strange thing to have happened because, uh, actually, I think we said no. We'd like to go with the A and M if that's cool. Mm. And he signed us. He signed us with with all of his other his other Rough Trade acts to Columbia. Uh, and um, so the first thing actually after the deal that they did was they put out the live album, the one that had YYY live on it. They put that album out because we did uh, we did a concert in Los Angeles that was recorded for a radio show. So there was actually a 24 track master tape. So I got asked to go over and work with an engineer who turned out to be Scott. Mm -hmm. uh, and we 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 mixed that live album together. Uh, and um, I did have to go because there was sort of from time to time, there were some problems where like an instrument stopped and then there was a kind of noise on the channel. So I had to go in and patch bits in that were broken and things like that. Uh, and um, and I really liked Scott, I thought it was brilliant. So when, when, the, when the Americans decided, yes, we'd like you to work with Scott Litt, um, I was really up for it. Um, but what I hit Scott with was 
basically stuff programmed on an Atari and um, I was actually, I hate to say it, but I was a bit green in those days. And um, we did a deal where we bought an Atari setup uh, to to begin the programming at the beginning of it. And the idea was that the the, the, the young chap in the office who is a whiz on it was was going to come and, and uh, help me for a few days. He's going to sit with me. He's going to get paid. But actually he decided to go on holiday. So, <laughs> so it, it's, it was sort of started. It was a bit of like head scratching and, and it was a bit slow at first for that. But it did pick up. And um, that was quite difficult for Scott because he, he was quite a sort of, um, you know, um, everybody played their instruments kind of a guy. And suddenly there's this, but he gave it a shot. Uh, and sometimes he maybe regretted that, but it was okay in the end. Uh, and um, and then when we finished it off, we'd finished the mixes in New York. There's a, a drummer called Fred Mayer, who was from Squitty Blitty and uh, uh, um, um, Lou Reed and stuff like that. Fred's great drum program, programmer and he came in and he just sort of changed some of the sounds and just sort of worked a bit with my programming and improved it. Um, so it's funny, it, it sort of went through being really electronic to all of the kind of live instruments coming in to, to being finished electronically, to being mixed analog. It sort of went in for be human, not human, human, not human. So that was the whole kind of thing of it, that it was kind of man machine type type affair. Uh, you also um, you also had a you had a lot of guests on this, including Gary Lucas, who had worked with Captain Beefheart and then went on to work with Jeff Butley and lots of other people. But he was a pretty well, he still is an amazing guitarist. We can still see him playing yeah. his kind of solo. So how did that de- develop? And how that did that happen? Suddenly... Because yeah, he was working. Um, he was working at Columbia, and on the first day that I went to meet everybody. Um, you know, I had like my piece of paper and I was writing everyone's names down because I know they're going in so quickly coming out the other ear and I've just got to keep up with it. And um, there's this kind of dude with really long curly hair, um, kind of really frizzy hair, almost like an afro, but in two sides. He's come, starts walking down the hallway and he's leaning on the wall as he is walking towards me. And when he comes to me, this guy... He just looks absolutely bollocks, right? And he walks up to me and he puts out and he goes, Hi, I'm Gary Lucas. Hi, I'm Gary. Come and say <laughs> hello in the office. So I go and see him in his office a little bit later on. I thought, oh, I'll go and see that interesting guy because he had quite a sort of interesting odor about him as well. So I thought, I'll go and check him out. Uh, so I did. And Gary Lucas was no longer playing guitar. He was the kind of think tank for, for, um, for Columbia at that point, including Def Jam, including um, well, their entire catalogue, went through Gary Lucas's warped mind as he thought of interesting slogans and fun ideas and stuff like that. And basically, he was just employed to sit in an office with a bong, think funny ideas that would work, and uh, and that's what he did. He doesn't do that anymore now, but that's what he did. He was actually really good at it, but yeah. he also quietly on the side was running an independent label called Upside. So what Upside did was they put out a record of all of our original singles before Rough Trade. Or, or no, actually, I think they got Move Me in there as well. They did a deal with Rough Trade. So uh, 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 it was a connection between Gary and and, uh, and Jeff, I think. Uh, so um, Upside put out that... Uh, really good compilation of all of those early tracks in a way that was our first album that compilation 
yes. Upside Point Out was our first album. Uh, this the second proper studio album, or the first proper, I suppose, was Giant. But um, yeah, so um, uh, we just became friends and um gary was a go-to for me whenever i i, I met a, a, a girl who's american so i started going to new york a lot i couldn't stop going to new york i just loved it and um uh so i'd see gary there was other people as well uh of course and um like another person that was part of the the new york family there was a lady called claudia cassetta and she was the pr lady that handed all of the kind of 12 inches to all of the american djs that are all the names of all the American DJs that you hear of now, but all when it was all a bit more beginning from Masters at Work, well, Louie and Kenny Dope to, you know, Tony Humphreys, all of these people. And yeah. they would come around to her flat. So, you know, before it was really a huge thing, I was kind of uh, really aware of what was going on in New York. And the one thing that got me about New York um, uh, productions was the quality of the programming. They just, they just had this incredible sound that, was yeah that's just really inspiring and as a programmer it was you know i know i play the acoustic guitar and i sing by i'm a programmer and so so it so it just uh uh yeah really exciting anyway but that's just a little later but um so um new york was 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 a tap head was just down the road uh and uh that was my other go to get on my skateboard and go and see skip and keith and doug in their in their loft just a couple of streets down so i really that was just such an exciting place to be and of course you know when they knew i knew adrian they put up the hand of friendship to me and you know and then more and more i got to know them and they they came and played and then you know um uh skip uh joined the band later doug came in and uh uh did um based on a couple of tracks one of the tracks it's a really slow beautiful song tuesday wednesday it's 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 a bit of a moan it's quite sweet it's a moan and he played the whole bass line on harmonics right in front of me just like that and i had to record the, you know it was my take was live and his take was live we recorded that just the two of us together live and benny was up in the control room with a with a little keyboard that had like a kind of raindrop like in a cave you know, as we were doing this, and I think we did maybe two, one, one jammy, getting it together, take, and then, all right, and then we did two takes, and I think we got it on the third take. But the beautiful thing about it was Doug was looking at the uh, the, the screen, the, uh, the SSL computer screen, and he could see when the cues were coming up for chorus. So he was reading the computer as well, he was playing it. So, like, for me, I would have had my head over studying the bass, making sure I didn't hear, he was looking at the thing and just playing it. Ooh, mm. uh, and also, uh, uh, yeah, um, Bernie Warrell uh, came in in America, and that, um, that was, the f that was seeing a classically trained person with lightweight, dexterous fingers playing in perfect machine, funky time. And those two things aren't supposed to go together, but in Barney Warrell, they do. And, you know, we went through all of his sounds, choosing sounds, and he was giving me demos of what they sounded like. And that's a golden moment that I will never forget. It's just two of us in the room choosing the sounds and getting the parts together, and he'd go and record it. Um, and he came in because he was a friend of uh, Scott's. So, right. you know, so he's got all those. Uh, there's been a number of times where I've sort of suggested somebody would be really great to check out. 
uh, Bernie was one, but I think Scott in a way suggested him and I just like, <gasps> woohoo, yes. So, but the other one was um, the squeeze box player in our, um, the song So Good Today in on Giant was Jack Emblow, who played on the Grace Jones um, Lubitango. That's his, he's playing that, it's an old chap. And there was a moment where it felt like that song needed something. And I sort of said, what about accordion? Do you think that sounds like a good idea? Uh, and uh, Bob said, oh, well, we could give Jack Amblow a call. And, and uh, I said, it's Jack Amblow. And he said, oh, he played on Libertango, uh, Grace Jones. And, and I, that was just like probably one of my favourite pieces of music of all time. Wow. So he came in and he, he knocked it out in 20 minutes, had a couple of tea, cups of tea, and then cheerily packed his accordion and left. Nice chap. Nice. Um, I know. That, that was a mind blow. That would, have been, um, that would have been amazing, yes. Yeah. Lee Scratch Perry walked in on the recordings that we were doing in London before we went over to New York to mix. Um, and he was standing in the hallway. And the way I remember it, uh, I, I, you know, because I think Benny remembers it slightly differently, but the way I remember it is that um, I went into the kitchen to make a coffee and there's Lee Perry standing there by the doorway um, dressed head to foot in mirrors that are just sending lights sparkling around the room and looking like a, uh, a bit uncomfortable. So I I went back into the room, our room, and then came back out and he was still standing there. Uh, so I introduced myself to him and said, you know, I'm a friend of Adrian, so, um, you know, I, I know who you are and everything. So, you know, relax. Is, is anybody looking after you? Uh, and he said um, he was supposed to be at the townhouse, mix, uh, cutting his album at the townhouse, but we were in the roundhouse. So he'd been dropped at the wrong place. Right. And the, and the cab had gone, but there was also a bus strike. Uh, and there are no cabs because there's a bus strike and they're really expensive. Um, so I said, well, you know, well, I could, okay, it might take a while, but I'll get them to use the studio account. They'll, they'll get you one and, um, we'll sort it out. And, you know, I found someone to do this shit and it was fine. I, I got the, the taxi ordered and I said, do you want to come in and, and, and sit down for a while? You're very welcome. So he was sort of nervously sort of, ah, and he sort of came in, came and sat down in the room and he stayed in that room till like three o'clock in the morning. So he was there from like about half one till three in the morning. Uh, and um, in that time, two songs were written, much laughter. Uh, kind of, we were all a bit like smashed at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he went and be, he went, he, he brought, he sent his sent for his manager and his manager came with the biggest bottle of wine. I think, I didn't even know they made them that big. Uh, this huge bottle of wine, which we went through. Uh, and when we'd gone through that, that was around about the time when he went. Um, but I think we stayed for like another half an hour after we'd gone good. Did that really happen? And like rewinding the tape, yes, it did. And, you know, just sort of cleaning up a bit before we kind of closed shop and went home. That was an incredible moment. And it was, it just sort of reminded me of like how boxed in I am as a, as a, as a thinker and as a writer that, you know, when I write my words, there's, there's very few of them just come out without me having to sort of sit there and think for a while. And, you know, and 
but when I think I'm still kind of in a sort of tight metal cube, whereas compared to other people I know, many of them, they seem to like have, they have like lots of holes in the cube and they can just go all kinds of places at my limited, limited, I don't know what it is, something. I'm just, I'm just too realistic. You know, I just, I, I don't know what it is. I, I just am who I am, as they say, you know, but it's like, he he just was playing games with words that I I could never play, and it was amazing to hear it and watch it. Um, how he turned, he took my lyrics and just juggled them, you know, and added added Perryisms to right. them. Nice. Yeah, just just incredible to watch. Uh, he was quite a sort of. Uh, he was quite a fast mover in the studio about what, especially when we, the first track was already there and he sort of pointed to something he didn't like about it. So we turned that off and then, then he started getting, you know, can I do something? I'd like to do something. We, we took all the mirrors off. <laughs> <laughs> there was the undressing Lee moment where, where he was like gently extracting from the, those rubbery, the, the stretchy clip things, a, a piece of the, the mirror and ha- handing it to me carefully. And then I placed it down on the sofa so it would cut into the sofa and make sure it wasn't going to break either and piled it all up, you know. And, oh my God, uh, people see, people have no idea the technical, you know, what, what goes on in these kind of creative processes, do they? Yeah, well, he, you know, I I get where he's coming from. I mean, you know, um, he's a he's he's an enriched man from the life that he's led, but he's also well, he, he's gone, but also he's a, a comedian in a very Jamaican Monty Python way. Uh, there's a Monty Python style to it. It's hard to explain it, but it is. It's a silliness. It's a mischievous silliness that plays games of tradition and history as well as as well as what's going on in front of you. I saw it many times, um, especially when he was demonstrating the wooden foot walk, you know, and and it is from him that we took the album title. I mean, you know, I I, I was trying to think of all kinds of titles and uh, it it just came to mind that that funny night of the wooden foot cop on the highway. That's how they walk when they're arresting to ask to see, to just stop you and walking over to see your license and they walk over with that stiff leg, you know, that's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, I couldn't get that idea out of my mind. I just thought it was really funny and and uh uh you know are you supposed to write are you supposed to have a serious name for your band or should it be a racehorse or are you supposed to have a serious name for your 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 uh, your album title should it be you know like yeah, basic absolutely. instincts a two-word thing you know you know you could you you can go wherever you want with it so um yeah and um and that 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 album didn't do so well in the UK there was like you, you make me feel had a moment um but stop this car was uh remixed um we went to yellow studio in Zurich and did it there uh with um Ian Tregonen who is engineer for yellow and co-producer and um and they were around then they went away then they came back uh and that was that was great being in Zurich doing that and I remember catching the, the plane on the way back and the box bloody broke open and all of the tapes, it's a big two-inch mask, everything just all fell out. All across. But I did catch the plane. I, did, I made it, I made it, I made it. Uh, but um, uh, uh, it didn't go down too well with with the people around us in management and record company and stuff. 
uh, at the time. I don't know what it was they're expecting. It was quite experimental mix, but it did it in the actual clubs. So that was the point. It was it was like a a, a runner in Californian indie new wave clubs, alternative clubs, alternative clubs everywhere, um, and. You know, we used a Baby Bell California Girl cheese advert over over a section of it as well, which is not something you could get away with now, but you could then, you know, like, for example, example Mick Jones' band. Um, Big Audio Dynamite. Big Audio Dynamite. A lot of what they, I mean, I, I'm sure they got away with it, like, at the beginning, uh, but it was, you know, it all changed later. I, mean, yeah. I, I can't be sure if that's really true. Maybe they got the life sued out of them i don't know but you know um uh so uh but that were yeah. you were you playing glastonbury were you i seem to remember my first glastonbury was 87 and then it was 89 did too did you do those ones kind of on the alternative stage were you sort of we did the alternative there? stage which was one of the wildest gigs we ever played it was Really fun, and then is that the one when they had that kind of Stonehenge made out of cars on one of the green fields, or did you not go that? I just remember that was quite anarchic that that festival. It was a bit... um, yeah, they uh, they were there. They were the French crew. They were called the they were punk, the French punks. Um, oh dear, I can't believe I can't remember that. It's terrible, isn't it? But yes, they were there. But uh, uh, that that first gig was really really sunny. And then the second one, the next year, we were on the main stage. We were at like sort of five o'clock or something like that. And it was one of those ones where it had rained and a lot. And we were really lucky because, you know, a hell of a lot of people turned up to see us. But the moment we started playing, we came out on stage, we played YYY, which was also was was going off then. Uh, so... Benny came out with his sort of 909 banging away on the percussion and just like did like it wasn't like a drum solo but it was in with the percussion kind of brought the song in he just went out and played the drums on his own for a bit also so they could really get the sound mm. and the sun came out and the sun stayed out for the remainder of our set it was just a perfect moment um and uh yeah yeah I remember I just remember that 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 going down really well. And I remember that the BBC were recording that second one. So there was an element of trying to hold it together. Uh, and there were two new music, new musicians in the band who were still a little bit vague at times. So I had this like really difficult kind of moment where I was trying to uh, entertain, you know, what is it? 50, 60, 70,000, 80,000 people, uh, direct musicians and play in time and make sure I sang in time. Could it <laughs> yes. be recorded in the BBC or putting it out? Uh, so it was pretty heavyweight on that score. Um, so it wasn't as much fun as the one before. The one before was just like brilliant fun. Um, and um Having said that, recordings came came out really well from it. So, uh, I also um, I wore a Kenzo suit that I'd bought in Japan. I went shopping in Japan and I bought this Kenzo suit because I liked it. And it was a funny thing. I think a lot of people really kind of just did not like that I did that. It wasn't like a flash suit. It was kind of it was kind of like quite. I suppose a bit later on, someone like John Lydon might have worn something a little bit like it, but it wasn't his kind of. I don't know. It was it was 
Kenzo and it was back then. Uh, I remember people writing and moaning and complaining about that. I wore that. And <laughs> yeah. yes. um, but the thing I remember that was actually the, the saddest thing about it was uh, when we were going f- from, we didn't stay on the site. We were in some place nearby and it was a stop on a tour, the whole thing, you know. Uh, and uh, we had to drive in the manager's car very slowly to the stage from wherever it was we were and there was this kind of very thin road with mud on either side of it and a bit of a drop but we had to get to the stage and as we were slowly oh so slowly with the lights flashing going all of the people who just seen the band before whatever it was i can't remember now were all leaving in droves and walking down this narrow road which was only wide enough for us and i just remember the awful long stretched out totally embarrassing just like uh, dying in your seat scene as we made our way towards the the stage with people just sort of going into the mud other such it just it just went was on a bad footing right from the worst <laughs> yeah, <go. laughs> uh yeah glad we got through the set to be honest with you um uh but but you know, when I listen back to it, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, when you play and play and play and play, you do get to a certain, your your improvement plateaus rise and your plateaus are pretty good compared to where you were like a few weeks ago. This plateau is great. And we were in a good place uh, in, in a lot of ways when we did that. If we hadn't have been, it would have been an absolute disaster. Yes. It would have been just a nightmare. But, There's um, so much yeah. pressure, isn't there, on that moment, really? So then, So then does the band you know, during the early 90s. Is this where the band sort of, and yourself kind of part, well, you don't part company because you are the band, but I mean, what happens then sort of the next phase? Because obviously there's kind of, you know, issues, you know, Rough Trade has their financial moment, don't they? And meltdown. And um, yes, music kind of then sort of goes into that next decade and everything starts to change again and people get tired, don't they? What were you going through at that stage? Um, I was going through... Uh, enjoying myself immensely uh, and um, being really proud of everybody and just loving my road crew and uh, and our stage artists and, and everything. You know, we were doing everything I wanted to do. We were playing really modern music uh, as well as just, you know, what we'd been playing before fitted. And uh, the new music was going great. And um, I was really thrilled that we were to, able to do a kind of audio visual show around the world we we managed to sort of condense it so we could fly it without it being like you know three planes of led zeppelin you know it was you know uh, uh the pas in those days were often where you were going to you didn't have to take the pa with you all the time mm. um sometimes we did before but you know not not for going abroad so uh you know it was kind of like we managed to get enough stuff with us to be able to take our uk show with us to say you know tokyo or wherever uh, and um, there were moments where the whole band just got on really well. Uh, but around about the point in time of the gigs, there would be sort of arguments, but they would kind of get forgotten about because they're just part of the drama of that night. <clears throat> but I think some resentments were sort of building up a little bit that I didn't see coming. 
which is people thinking, well, you know, if that twat can do it, I can do it. <laughs> and, you know, sort of thinking about thing, you know, thinking about people they knew to like start something else up with. So I was getting to a point where I was saying, well, why don't you do that? You know, because uh, we've just done this album, we've played it and all the rest of it. I'm going to be a while before I come, come up with anything. So why don't you do that? Use the room. You know, I was just like, go for it, you know. Uh, but I, 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 but it was the point in time where somebody said to me, um, I said, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll call you in a while, you know, months. Uh, well, 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 what do you mean? Well, well, and you know, I'd like, I've got to do it hundred percent. And I'm like, oh, don't be, don't be ridiculous. Keep your foot in the door, man. You know, oh no, no, I'll give myself body and soul hundred percent. So. Uh, I started, people started going and doing their own things. They really did. And um, Simon Morby, bless him, did what he'd be desperate to do, which is breed. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, Frankie met a girl, uh, a, a girl with killer fingernails who lived in Barcelona. So he went to go and spend some time with her. Uh, and um, then uh, um, I was very wrapped up in what you just sort of lightly touched on as like the end of rough trade was a real problem because at that point in time uh management was uh, and you know because i didn't point out to you that seb also managed shelley and orphan uh and did tackhead for a while and for a short while i think he did julian cope too uh, uh but anyway so um Oh, you see, he helped Julian uh, selling his books. Uh, he worked with Julian on that and maybe a record, I don't know. So um, anyway, um, we were trying to leave Rough Trade because for the uh, for what Seb was looking for, where he saw us going next, he needed to have a different kind of record company. I was, I did have a couple of personal reasons why I backed him on that. I won't go into it, but... Um, so uh, Shelley and Orphan and Wooden Tops are going to move away from Rough Trade and Jeff was absolutely livid. You know, he, he, I think he just thought, are you rats jumping from the the sinking ship? Yeah, die, drown, you bastards. And so he, he basically took a really long time to let us go. But in fact, if he just let us go really quickly, he could have had a rider on, on any future success. No problem. That's what we were asking for. There was some little, some, well, not that little, but there was a sum of money that uh, Rev Trade did owe us and, and, and when they didn't pay it, that's when Seb said, right, well, you're in breach of contract, you know, we're going to go ahead. And it, it it took three years to finish that. And so I think, I think Jeff was in his way trying to, you know, kill the beast, you know, kill us, you know, and, and then in a way, I think he did, you know, because, because it takes, you know, if you've got no, nobody, like no press department reminding, you know, perhaps if I'd been really savvy, if I cared, about the business side of things. If I if I knew what I n know now, I, I probably would have gone, okay, fine. First thing is we hire ourselves a press department. So you've just got sort of stuff coming out that so people know you're still out there and all the rest of it. When we left Rough Trade, it just went boof, the door, it was like we disappeared, chunk, you know. Um, but as I say, I, I expected to take some time to write something new. I felt I'd really kind of contributed to the 80s and I was thinking about forward. Uh, and um, and 
Um, but then the interesting thing is when you when it all falls apart like that, suddenly you can't pay your musicians anymore. So, you know, there was Benny doing his new band and Simon having his babies and everything. And so I just kind of felt like uh, I'm sure when I write all the new stuff that they'll like it and get involved. Uh, and sure enough, it happened. <laughs> so we did. We went back out on tour and we did this unbelievable tour. Uh, the worst date was actually the, the London one because it was the first one. But it was very, very synchronised and live and it had Skip McDonald playing. It had um, uh, W French singing. Uh, it had uh, a keyboard player uh, who came from actually Jesus Jones, I think it was. Uh, and... Um, Benny playing the best drums he's ever played. Um, oh, and Yovo Mbweke on drums because, oh, sorry, on bass, on bass from Paris because um, kind of Frank was sort of disappeared into Barcelona and we couldn't really sort of, you know, uh, there was pressure to, to work with, with Yovo and um, Yovo was really brilliant. And so suddenly we had this completely different band and we didn't play any old wooden tops faves, nothing. We did like we we did the dream thing that you would like to do. It's just go and play an entirely new set and just see what happens. Well, I tell you what happens is half your audience walks out after a bit. Uh, and that kind of happened in, in Leicester Square that night. But the people that stayed just went nuts because you know we had we had moved with the times, we'd tapped in the feeling of what was happening, but we'd added something to it. We'd done it a different way. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, that's it. That's what, in a way, you know, it's like something influences you when you start, right in the very early days when you start. And, well, you don't go copying that, but you, you yeah, you, you, you make it your own and you, you add stuff like the blues is what people did that with the blues, you know? Yeah. Like, so, so I've got no problem with it, but I didn't invent house music, but I wanted to incorporate funky and house and that kind of psychedelia into what we were doing, the psychedelia we were already doing anyway. So just sort of, you know, um, and, uh, and possibly follow the journey that YYY was sending us on, you know, to a new audience because, to my mind, the 80s had done it, you know, mm. um, all the indie bands and everything, it was done. Um, and so uh, I kind of, uh, I kind of started writing for Club Floor. And um, the first thing that I did was, uh, there, there was a club I really liked going to in London called Confusion, um, Nicky Trax's club. And um, it wasn't like Shum and all the ones that everyone was writing about, all of the kind of, you know, a more white club it was not it was kind of really different flavor and I loved it and you know there were people going in there like Derek May and Tony Humphreys all of these kind of people uh and so there was a band that was sort of yeah Adamski was always hanging I remember seeing Adamski in there I mean it's funny I could have met him and got friendly with him and saved another 20 years because we get on really well so I could have met right. him then but I used to see him all the time you know uh and um uh, but there was a band that really really interested me called Bang the Party which was uh Kid Bachelor and Les and and basically it was um 
release your body that one yes and then bang bang your mind was another one um so i teamed up with them and um we went to addis studios which was uh which was up in uh was up in um um uh by where the windsor castle is harrow harrow road harrow road that's right um and kind of soul to soul scene and all that kind of scene we went in with ian tregonin again we went in there and we we recorded we there was something that i'd knocked up and then ian came in and it was a bedroom track and we actually released that as a bedroom style uh, a white label 12 inch and got some good plays on it actually like Lenny D played it I remember seeing Lenny D banging that out in in the top floor of a, an embassy building somewhere near the museums it's called Loft just brilliant yeah. um, and uh, then we did this collab with uh, with with uh, with with Bang the Party and that was taking that mix a step further uh, that song a step further and then the b side of that uh we just sort of got really into the drums and took the bass much further down the keyboard into a really heavy end and there was a point when um so this is like 1991 i think and kid bachelor turned around and said to me well, you know what this sounds like? Let's get what you can say. This sounds like I've, there's only one word I can think of that it sounds like jungle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, were, we were doing this like slow, it's, it's sort of 128 BPM kind of jungle thing, you know, and it really was. Uh, and uh, it went out and it was literally mutant disco that you wouldn't think would go anywhere. And then I heard one day that Tony Humphreys from Kiss FM New York City had played it. And um, and it was on a cassette. It was on a, a kind of, you know, the, he used to, like John Peel cassettes, people, they used to sell cassettes, DJ mixes. Tony Humphrey's mixtapes were like real admin, the doyens of taste for all mm. of the people that were into, you know. So they were studied, those things. And, you know, we had a track on it, you know. And um, so he came over to... Uh, uh, do a um, a residency at the Ministry of Sound when it was really newly open. There was two glorious years of the Ministry of Sound when everybody knew everybody, the best DJs, the best music. I mean, you know, you had to sort of hear like Masters at Work playing sort of, you know, um, Lil Lewis tracks and for the first time and oh my god the hi-fi the sound people always go on about those new york discos the sound they say mm-hmm. well the sound of new york came to 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 elephant castle and they had a authentic richard long sound system in there that was absolutely amazing um it's gone now it's a massive wall of marsh and martin mid-range and it's horrible it's done but for two years it was beautiful and as i say everybody was there and um, the first night of the Tony Humphreys residency, there was just huge crowd of people outside and even he couldn't get in to play his own gig. I witnessed that whole thing. But I had a get in free whenever you want for the rest of your life ministry of sound card. And it's a long story how I got that, but it was just helping out with remixes basically got me that card from one of the DJs that sent, set it up, uh, Bert, Bert Bevins. So uh, I um, got in, of course, um, and um, 
and I took Benny with me from Woodentop. So we went out for a night together. And yeah, it was really, really good. And then at about four o'clock in the morning, um, I can tell you that uh, Bjork was there um, and she had two bodyguards, big guys, and they were throwing her like, well, uh, anyway, I'll get to that. So we're dancing and we're having a great time. And then Benny, Benny like elbows me and he goes, listen, listen. And I can't really, what, what am I listening to? I'm enjoying this tune, mate. It's tune. He goes, listen, listen, listen. And the track came in. I heard Tony Humphreys play it. It came in and he played it a slower tempo than ours. It, it, aware one, two, eight. I think he played about one, two, two. And it just sounded so sexy at that speed. And it just took over the whole place. And it just, the whole mutant bass thing was proper witching hour stuff. It just went really deep and dark and strange and funky with all of those drums in it. Oh my God. Uh, and, and there's the point at which you've got um, Bjork being thrown like a medicine ball or a basketball from one minder to the other. And her, her mascara is all down her face and she's just like trashed and having a best time. <laughs> and then she goes, do, do, do. And my track is playing. And it just blew my mind, you know. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I, I did it. I went to the side of the DJ booth and I waited really patiently. <clears throat> and, you know, Tony Humphreys looked around, saw me a couple of times. And then when he had a moment, he came over and, and I said, you know, just like such a, you know, a dweeb, a noob. I said, you know, you just played my record. Thank you very, very much. And he goes, which one? Which one? It's still about two with all the drums. And he just, his eyes opened. He went, oh, I found that by accident. I absolutely love that. It reminds me of something I really love. And he said what it was, but I couldn't really hear because I mean that is a monstrous. Um, so he said, he said, will you, would you, would you wait around when I finished? Yeah, I did. I waited around, saw him after it finished, and you know he came over, and he said, um, listen, I, I, would you, would you, could, would you see yourself to? Could you get me a box of that? Uh, you know. Um, and I did. So I went back the next month and he did his second, his second night of his residency. Um, and, uh, oh, yes. So I would say that he had two copies of it when he played it. I don't know where he got the other one from because he extended it. It went on really long time. He extended the middle. I, I heard what he did. He just stretched it out. So when I came back with the box of them, um, he was like really happy. He took the box and said, come and see me afterwards and everything, you know, and um, did his set. And then at the same time, about four o'clock, when the real crazy people need something really crazy, he put it on. But in front of my eyes, I, I stood there, I watched it. He had three copies on three decks of, of the Wooden Tops record and was banging it out for, God, it felt like it went on for 20 minutes or something. It just went forever and it just was relentless. And... So I had now sort of got my foot and successfully moved in a really hefty way into the 90s. Uh, and um, I was super excited about it. And when I got in touch with, you know, everybody who is important and uh, they didn't know what I was talking about. They just didn't know what I was talking about. What, what's Kiss FM, New York City, who's Tony Humphreys? They didn't know anything about it. And that's when I realised that... Uh, you know, 
at that point that there's some of us go out at 11 o'clock and there's others go to bed at 11 o'clock <laughs> and it's a different world and so it was you know i mean you know good, good on seb because he, he gave me the benefit of the doubt and put you know put some money and effort into releasing that record um and we sold every copy of it i mean I've, i do have like a few left but honestly it sold out uh it was like five thousand of them sold um and um and it was just a, a complete fluke of a victory. But then, you know, the, the people that were writing about music and particularly club records at the time, uh, people like Rocky and Diesel were doing the Essential Mix series, were saying, you know, we just couldn't believe that they're playing like, it's the wooden tops again. It's like, <laughs> you know, Tony Humphrey's coming over playing, playing, us, uh, playing us the wooden tops as a new release. It's like selling coals to Newcastle, you know, it's like, uh, and... Um, and so that one, even though not many people know about it, that was actually because he played that on his world tour. He played it everywhere. That's why he took a box of them. So there's many more tapes of him playing it and, and on his radio show. So that that was just a real fluky, wonderful victory. And, you know, I'm starting to sort of find that. Uh, uh, so I'm really going that way. And we did that tour with that band and we played in a much more kind of like uh, club floor style. Uh, I thought we we added plenty of science fiction to it, plus good songs and and all kinds of like really flying moments. I thought we we did really well, but in, in you know in in France in Paris there was a riot and uh, you know I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the dark skin members of our band got stuff thrown at them, and so we we felt really bad about that because we all you know every. And a lot of people walked out as well because we weren't like playing Move Me at like 200 miles an hour and all the rest of it. We we were really <clears throat> kind of loved in Paris being the way that we were. But, you know, we stayed that way for long enough, you know, come on. Uh, and, um, and, and a little bit later on, of course, there's all of this like great club music comes out of France and out of Paris. It was just too ahead of it for people. They'd get it. They would have got it few years later but just not right then um and uh so uh you know that's the point in time we do that tour and everything wooden tops goes dormant and um you know what we said we'll we'll let you know i, I need a bit more time uh we'll see each other let's 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 get together in a year was was like the last kind of gentleman's agreement well, actually, it took quite a lot, <clears throat> not longer than one year. In fact, it took the whole of the 90s and, you know, half of the 2000s for, for us to get back together and play. Um, because, you know, truthfully, that's what we'd been doing ever since we were sort of like 18. Was, mm. You know, like me and Simon, we knew each other back in the year. We just played nonstop till then. So like, is that all I can do? You know, so we tried doing all kinds of other things that we found out you can do other things. Uh, but... Um, I I just kind of got more and more into making Rolo style kind of club music, uh, and um, it just seemed to be it seemed by the kind of reaction to it to be the right thing to do. You know, there was I started a project called Pluto, and you know, Mr C from the Shaman started a new label, and I was all over that. 
Um, I was hearing everything I did played in clubs. You know, I'm, I'm kind of get it's, it's, it's a funny feeling that you go from being um, a person that makes the music and puts it all together and thinking about what will work, what will work with people's bodies and getting it right and understanding what is groove and what is, you know, uh, and um, here yeah, and then you go to you go out because I would go out a lot and and then you're like a sort of the, the man who runs the fun fair, uh, checking the machines are running okay and that you know no cars are going to go flying off and oh you know yeah it seems to be going well it's not squeaking <laughs> too, it's not squeaking too much on the platform there like it does sometimes you know uh, you you just watch it and you just watch it work and and it's just really uh, you know I, I'm almost a little blasé about it because I've done it so many times with so many records now um that uh you know it's really thrilling to to watch it work um and to watch a dj make it work too putting it in the right place in your set and just like fitting it in or using the right amount of it or all those kind of things it's fascinating you know fascinating seeing your music remix it's fascinating seeing it performed um and uh and so you know albums of that and and then incomes incomes sampling technology much more than it ever was where people are cutting drum loops up into tiny little bits and you know drum and bass calms and i love that you know that that really speaks to me that's all drums and bass oh yeah and so that got with that and then Somewhere around that time, a really funny thing happened. Somebody knew somebody who knew somebody else with our label, Second Skin, it was in Battersea. Uh, and we got asked to contribute some tracks to a CD that was going to, was being released by some, uh, by a company in California uh, that wanted lots and lots of tracks because they were doing this thing called library music. Yeah. Now, library music sort of used to have a bit of a bad name to it. Oh, yeah, that's what. Yeah. What they do when they've got song or whatever, yeah. So you know, but library music, strangely, uh, is a place where you can compose something really quickly, or just knock something up really quickly, and put it out before it's really kind of lost the magic of that first twenty minutes. You know how it often is that first twenty minutes of discovery of a new track, like yes, it's got legs followed by <laughs> weeks of toil and months of toil of finishing it off you know yeah. uh these you can catch things in a really early way and just like get the magic of them anyway because because there's something i was always interested in is like you know music with with visual images you know instead of instead of someone making a video to suit our music you're making music to suit you know something that's already there uh and you know i got asked <laughs> yeah uh, I got asked to do a, a Channel 4 thing called Pandora's Box, which was actually uh, about the, it was a, a very anti-meat industry movie. It was grisly as fuck. And I lived, I lived with two hours of footage of hell for a while. Mm. And, and I, you know, doing the music for that was was kind of grisly, but, you know, making it really as obnoxious as it is, was good challenge. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, and then... Um, I became a sort of uh, think tank for Weird and Wonderful from uh, Boozy and Hawks, who make saxophones and stuff. But they also had a kind of library unit. And and we got involved in that uh, at Second Skin. And we, we were putting out CDs that we were getting paid up front for and putting them out. And then once they paid the advance off, we were getting royalties. And they're getting used. So uh, we, without anybody pressure, putting pressure on you, what you're supposed to do, 
uh, you just do it and 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 see what happens and you know um just well i can tell you that one thing that happened i went on a date uh and um we went to see a, a film in uh in in boat uh in, in fulham at the Odeon, and we sat down in the Odeon, and just before the film started this incredible piece of music came on it was like the deepest heaviest bass you can possibly imagine and uh my my dates went oh my god i love that and then i was able to turn and say well actually i did that you know because <laughs> i did i did i got the sky digital ad you know and it was just something we'd already done but they they wanted it you know so they they paid for that and and so started to see music in a different way starting to see music working functionally and uh and and also how far can you go to make something that is audio interesting uh, and so that journey has taken me like very far now uh, and um, you know I kind of as much as I enjoy singing and playing live and the link with an audience you know I also really enjoy a bit of kind of you know digital or manipulation of sound and and you know it's not exactly new technology but it's incredible fun it's like uh you know sort of uh activating filters over a sound to alter the sound that is based on a picture so mm. like a you know on on the upcoming album that we finished there's a great moment in it where uh, uh the sound is actually deeply affected by what is the image of loads of footballs falling out the back of a lorry um uh, and this, this, the track is actually about like kind of bath escape, deep sea diving, and you know, of oxygen. Uh, uh, well, calm down, it's that you've already breathed it. So, yeah. Uh, and, and it goes a long way because you've got those lead boots on, you're very far down. Or, or you, even if you're in a sub, you're really deep down, you're in the, mar- you know, in the trench. And uh, yeah, and uh, so um, the footballs they poured the back out the back of the lorry and I just slightly altered them so they were more of a speech bubble type you know more like a a water bomb or something shape so mm-hmm. they have a thinner talk and then stood them st- stood them up as if they so as if they were going upwards and then you know went all around all the bubbles and making sure that all the shapes were really defined there's nothing you don't need there there's no, you know uh, it's really clean bubbles and then it, sticking a guitar through that you know <laughs> it sounds beautiful it really sounds like it's just because in the track you've already got used to the sound of that like uh, the, the air release the constant air release and then you get that at the crescendo of the track so you know that's kind of uh, also um i really like things like the sonic arts network which is which is you can go and do university courses about that actually mm. um um and you know, as a kid, I tried to get them to start electronic music course in, in Goldsmith College because I wanted to learn to make Doctor Who music. And I just felt that electronic music was going to be really big. So they haven't got one, so they ought to have one. And I nearly pulled it off. I nearly was the first student of 
goldsmith on the electronic first ever electronic music course but i didn't have enough a level so they gave me the thumbs down in the end and now they've got about three or four courses <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the doctor who theme because i came from a little village in suffolk called metfield and it was bordered onto fresenfield and there was a guy who lived in fresenfield who did the early doctor who music and um and I'll have to find oh, david him. no but he went back to australia and he's called, oh, Christ almighty. Um, I should, oh, Jesus. Dr. Hugh Music, composer from Fresenfield. God. But he, you know, he, well, he did a lot of odd and wonderful music. And um, I'm going to have to sort of find this later. Not Murray. Murray Gold. Not Murray. Oh, shit. Yes, Murray, Murray did... Uh... Did a did a, a Doctor Who he did he, he but he was actually a keyboard player in the wooden tops for a short time. How about that? I'll have to find this because it's gonna try because I just remember you thinking, oh Tristan, Tristan Kerry. Oh, okay. I do know the name. Electronic yeah. in, in innovator who yeah, Tristan. And he, yes. he we used to drive past on the school bus and we oh look, there's a person who does but Did I he think, have like quite long bushy grey hair? Whitey hair, by the way. <laughs> um, God knows. I wonder what he looks like, actually. But he, yes, that, that Doctor Who thing was quite a, I don't know. Yeah, it's not the theme. For me, it was all of the incidental music. Like, um, I saw this very funny thing about, like, films made in Russia uh, and um, experimental films, and one of them was two old people trying to cross the road but the road is really muddy and the road has got you know large pieces of road digging machinery going by so they're not trying to cross the road for cars it's just these huge machines but every time the machine went by instead of being the sound of the engine it was a synthesized kind of version of a machine that was kind of really odd and kind of quite doctor who-ish in its way and it's 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 what happens if you take away the soundtrack of what you'd expect to be there and put something else there. You know, that is what I really love about the way that the Doctor Who soundtracks work. So, you know, when the creatures came out of the water, that is like really bizarre and alarming music and um, all of those kind of areas of Doctor Who. Apart from that, it was very, hello, Doctor. <laughs> oh, Doctor, I'm terribly worried they're coming. You know, but it's... A, <laughs> But you know, yes. But I think this guy, great Tristan, scenes. Yes, great but I think he, the black and white ones. This was kind of the early years, and I think he just made weird noises, basically. So um, yeah, he would have. He, he that was his kind of thing in life. So uh, yes, I'll just I'll send you the link, and then you'll go. Oh right, that's so. But I think he did a lot of kind of stuff. But um, yes, it was it was kind of strange you mentioned that. So what's your as we come to the end of another interesting year in an interesting decade, what's your sort of next um, kind of sort of phase or, or sort of project that you're working on? Um, just completing a, 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 a new Wooden Tops album. I'm done. Uh, it was in the beginning of the lockdown. I did some collaborations and I did one with a band called Mountain of One. Uh, another with an, uh, some guys down in Brighton called Andre Zavi. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm now doing 
some stuff with Leo, Leo Estlob. Uh, and I also did, oh, this will make you laugh. I also did uh, a remix of um, Boogie Yugi Yugi, <laughs> Boogie Yugi Yugi by, um, Sorry, now I'm going to do it now. <laughs> um, but it was it was a cover by Catherine Kathy Brown, uh, and we were actually number two in the club the chart club charts on the black club charts at Track Source uh, last Christmas. Um, and we were hoping to get to number one for news, but we went down to three. Um, oh, oh t- taste of honey that's right sorry i didn't need to you know sometimes when you look things up it comes back to you as you're typing it in yes that's um, yeah, yeah. So, so when you do it with the the, the wooden tops album that you've got coming out does that will you know people who know the wooden tops will they go oh yes that's wooden tops always this kind of quite a you know in quite a different you know musical vein here's the beautiful thing i can do all different kinds of music anything you like but when my voice goes on on it then it becomes that it just falls naturally into it um so the answer to your question is very much yes um but in no way has it been any attempt to try and sort of go anywhere we've gone before it doesn't but it's got really cool beats it's got great bass lines it's got you know the 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 voice and it's got yeah quite good good parts all over it i'm i'm, I'm excited about it. i think it's really good yeah and I who have you and who have you maybe worked our best with on this one um i have worked with uh here we go i'm just going to look at tristan now uh open link where is he ah oh, yes 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 him yes no he really goes back him <laughs> yes he's an early he's an early inventor isn't he Present yeah. Field Suffolk, there you go. No, he died in 1990. He's not, he's not who I thought he was, but I know who he is. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah. They used to know him. How amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well done. That's a good one. You know, part of the fun of it was getting to meet people. Oh, my God, he did quite a mass in the pit. Oh, I love that soundtrack. Oh. <laughs> he did the Lady Killers. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know him more for his music concrete, as it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there you go. He provided the visual design of the MSVCS3. That's it. That's why I know him. Yeah, that's. Yeah. So there you go. Um, I feel like your hair's grown a bit since I since I went away and looked. At, <laughs> come back so, from Wikipedia, so, and you're going. No, um, so um, yes, with this one, who have you worked with with the Wooden Tops album? Um, I've worked with Simon from the Wooden Tops. Um, I've worked with Frank Defratus from the Wooden Tops. I've worked with Wayne Urquhart, who's a newer musician for the Wooden Tops, who plays what? There's a couple of musicians who've been absolutely like real bricks. One of them's a guy. Um, Mal Darwin, who's now moved to Cornwall. But uh, Mal is was very much go-to musician for me uh, for lots of different things. Like I did quite a lot of solo stuff with, I went to playing guitar and double bass, but he's got this really fat ass double bass. I mean, you should have heard the windows vibrating in Concord two that time we played there. I mean, it's just like deep, massive bass. And then me playing acoustic guitar and singing, he can sing as well. Uh, and um, so we had like a kind of like, 
upbeat folk thing where we could sort of get into folk clubs and then sort of not be very folky at all. It was good fun. <laughs> uh, and then um, then uh, he would come and play bass when Frank couldn't make it. There, you know, Frank is back. The, the, Frank and Simon and, and myself, sadly not Benny, he's in New Zealand now, but, uh, you know, we, we, we all played together uh, as we've always played together and everything's great. Um, but F Frank had basically, you know, he had like a personal reason why he had to take a year off. Um, and so he took a year off and a couple of people stood in and one was, was Mal. And then another was Wayne and Wayne, uh, cause I've moved to Deptford now I'm down in Deptford and, uh, Wayne is, uh, sort of is, and was, is, is let's say in a band called pest which is a band local to here which is an extremely funky ass really brilliant band and um just just being the way things have gone uh, they're sort of dissipated a little bit so i pissed everybody off by asking if it, you know if, if it's okay if wayne came and worked with me so i <laughs> 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 nick wayne <laughs> oh wayne and uh, Wayne, Wayne, bless him, has come and worked with him, me, a, a lot now. We we also have done solo shows together. Uh, and um, uh, he plays electric cello. Uh, he's brilliant on the cello, but he's a very, very tight, funky bass player. So he can also, he understands how keyboards work, but he's got really good timing. But he is also um, like terrific in the studio. So Wayne has come on board and he's added something to the band, which I... It's, it's hard to describe, but it's really important. It's like somehow we try harder. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and he's great. And um, and so we. I think the next tour we do, we may very well, and I really hope we do, uh, is work with a drummer called Visa, uh, who um, is from uh, also from Pest. So two musicians from Pest now working with with, with the Wooden Tops. But um, I do have to have people close to me because you know I need to work with people sometimes, and I just need to be able to walk to where they live. And and so that's one of the reasons I'm still here. Uh, is is I actually really adore it here. I think this is a great place to live. Um, so anyway, so. Um, the Wooden Tops is capable of playing any song from any period of the back catalogue, but is really sort of focused on the, the new one. Um, and we'll have to balance it out. But what we've sort of noticed is whenever we sort of battled with that conundrum, that the newer songs somehow seem to just work, mm -hmm. you know? It's okay. So if we just put like, you know, if we just put a dabble of them in, not like do what we did before, just play an entire new song, ah, <laughs> you will like, you know, okay, I learned my lesson, right? But um, I just wanted to do it. But, um, you know, it just kind of, uh, it, it, they, they sit in really easily. So, you know, there's about three tracks on, on the album. We've already played them out, you know, like, you know, the indie fest off called, shine uh, oh yes mine head yes we did that you know we've been playing them all through that tour we've been playing them so you know you, you just sort of introduce them and just see if they work if 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 they if they don't work you know you know it's like okay well maybe uh, we'll leave that on the set and try another one you know um but they just work so um and, and i'm quite confident about that i just think they do what we want really um 
but there are a couple of tracks on here that don't have me singing on them that are instrumental but one is one is basically you know your chance to go deep sea diving that you never had <laughs> and then the other uh, and you can do it twice as well and then then the other is uh, a bit of kind of urban urban strangeness i mean it's sort of got very very large horns on it dark big fat notes from probably one of the biggest bass horns ever made which was made specifically for an italian opera that a mate of mine who is a, a he 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 actually plays um sudophone for the hackney colliery band and things like that um jeff miller and jeff Jeff has a collection of horns and he's got this huge thing with clanky chains on it and everything. It's just like entire alien nightmare all in, all in one with the clanky <laughs> chains and the metal and everything. And the sound comes from it. It's really... It, it sounds like Alistair Sims in The Christmas Carol, I think, or Scrooge. Yeah, no, I think it's a little bit more like... Uh, um, like the scene at the beginning of uh, Taxi Driver, actually. You know how Taxi Driver starts? It's got that. Is he just so, driving slow? Bernard Herrmann soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, this is not in any way an attempt to um, emulate that. It was just the way that it was recorded, which is at my house a while ago. Um, it just worked like that. But then I've taken elements out of that and thrown them into the kind of um, audio sculpt world of pulling them apart and making them tiny. And, and then there's, there's, there's a kind of real urban feel to it, a little bit like, you know, sort of you've been out really late and you're, you're walking home and the city you're walking home and there's all of those random sounds like, for example, when they empty the bottles at, out in the back of the bar and throw them all into... <laughs> That kind of noise, that kind of stuff's in there. It's a sort of uneasy stroll. Um, um, it's yes, it's fear basically. And and you know, there's a, right down the bottom of the garden where I live is where the trains come through from uh, uh, to go to New Cross and New Cross Gate and and, and south down to Crystal Palace or whatever. Uh, and there's there's bridges and there's this just great sweet spot where the train sounds so ace they really do you can hear sometimes you hear them from a really long time and you hear the track dance and the electricity and the sparks and then the train comes closer and it goes back it's music it really is and and when they come back from the other way and stuff like that um so there's an element of that is in there as well just to make like a a, a short but great sort of urban moment amongst the songs you know and there's also one that's really funky but it's like a you know just really fun you know setting up the the drum kit um the pool actually paul who, who played with us recently to live until recently played with this live paul ashby um he'd come around to my house and we set set his drum kit up at the sort of back end of my room not this room there's no room in this room for it uh they set up the set up the the kit and just put like crappy mics all over the kit and just like just put something on the sequencer that all it needs to do is just kind of go and then just play and just play any old shit but in with it you know and then yeah and then like you know two three years later you're you're sort of scrolling through things thinking what the hell was that and then you get these great live moments where wow that's great and so you know some of those things have have made their way 
into this album. I found them. Like I was just really looking for everything that, you know, so right, like an album that took a really long time to write. Yeah. All things from, so it's a really long journey through the 90s and the 2000s to here, mainly 2000s to here. Uh, um, and... I was going to say something. I mean, it's gone now. But uh, yeah, yeah. So that 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 that's what it is. Oh yes, I know what I was going to tell you. So the previous album uh, it was called Granular Tales, and that album came from uh, a week's writing in the country where it was at the point where I'd done so much like techno and so much house and so much you know, kind of breakbeat music and, and all of these different sort of things. And I was really happy. And then one day I thought, you know what, I'd really like to see where my actual songwriting is now in a traditional way. And so I booked a, I booked a like, not very expensive, like place in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in Somerset. And I fully was intending to go on my own uh, to, to lock myself away for a week and just see what happens, mm. you know. Um, but we we had this uh, studio complex in Brixton in, uh, called uh, by the SW SW uh, nine is it SW four SW four bar uh, and um, we we all had these little kind of uh, units uh, in this kind of annex, lots of musicians and that with little studios all soundproofed and all disturbing each other and really good fun. And next to me. I had somebody that I hadn't really got to know. It looks a little like you. Uh, that I hadn't, I hadn't really got to know, but I'd seen him round, and I really liked the sound of his piano playing, and whatever he was doing was completely nuts. And so, one day I approached in the corridor, him in the corridor, and I said, "You know." I don't know what you're up to now, but I really like it. And he goes, he goes, oh, I really like what you're doing. You know? And I said, oh, let's go and have a beer. So we went to the SW4 bar. Oh, God, is it? Yes, I mean, I... <laughs> uh, we got slaughtered, right? And then we went back and we went to, I went to kind of, you know, just get my stuff out of my room and sort of make it home and stuff. Because then I was going everywhere on my skateboard and being really pissed on your skateboard. is a bit dangerous, you know. So uh, I went into his room to say ta-ta and he was sitting by his piano and somehow it happened within 30 seconds we were writing this really beautiful song and I was singing and he was playing the piano and we were just like completely able to work together in absolute synchronicity and laugh about it and just really enjoy wow that's really great and enjoy encouraging each other into the next thing so I asked him if he would like to come with me down to the countryside so we went and stocked up and we drove with, we loaded the car, I loaded the car with all the gear and we drove down to the place and we wrote 18 songs in what, like five, six, seven days, something like that, 18. Blimey. Some of them were experimental, some of them were most of the last album. And I kind of thought that I'd kind of done all of those songs now, but it's funny thing, there were a couple of little details in there that I really wanted to sort of look at again. And I did. And there was this one that I'd forgotten about, uh, which was basically one of the last things we did, uh, whereby we uh, we I, I had this little drum machine where you tap it with sticks and then it you know you can record it in sequence it and tighten it. 
uh, MPC drum computer. Uh, and and that's how we did it. So we worked really, really, really fast. I couldn't believe how fast we were working. And, you know, who's bringing, bring, he was bringing out good performances from me because he was like really good on the piano. So just, I sort of woke up a bit and, you know, we we're just really pleasing each other with everything we were coming up with. It was just nonstop brilliance all week till we fell asleep. We were every night, we worked till we fell asleep and then got up and as soon as we could and got back into it. And, uh, I played this beat in the house at absolute full volume, just like, you know, there aren't anyone, it's no one nearby, so you don't have to worry about people, but the window frames and anything that's got any shake about is like really vibrating with the, 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 the kick drum and, you know, the, the bass off. It's going, you know, like being outside the drum and bass can't, can't get in at old places. Mm. Uh, and then we've got a mic and I put a mic underneath this. Uh, it's like a, they call them money trees it's like a very oh, light yes. silvery thing and it's got these little silvery leaves that shimmer in the wind they just you know. so we recorded the drum sound from underneath the shimmering leaves and then uh that was the rhythm track and then uh uh there was some kind of quite nice chords came over it but Mm, the tiredness was coming over and I knew in the morning I had to like pack all of that stuff up and put it in a car. And obviously we, other we'd lose a deposit if it was left like this, we need to clear it up and everything and all the rest of it. So I was aware I had to get up quite early the next day. So I kind of left him to it and, and went to bed and fell asleep in about 0.5 of a second, <laughs> you know? And, um, and then the next day we, we, we we sort of worked together to clear up and wash up and do everything and clear up. And at one point, Rich Richard said to me, um, um, "I haven't told you who he is yet." That's right. So Richard says to me, um, uh, "Do you know last night? I, I I actually did. I did. I did put some idea down. I had this like sort of vocal idea anyway. I did put it down, but you never guess. I I fell. As, I woke up. And my face was flat down on the keyboard. I fell asleep. Was it? I I have no idea what I did. No idea." So, okay, well, you know, we've got a pack now. pack, And we left. Um, Richard Thomas, the fella from next door, I didn't know, but he was sort of working with people like um, comedians, uh, um, Simon, Simon. Um, oh, was that the guy from the file show? No, he's 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 great. I'm sorry. Oh my god, this is this is terrible. It's happening to me all the time now, isn't it? Uh, UK comedians, it'll come straight away. UK comedians, Simon. UK comedians, Simon Monnery. I, I, look, I didn't even see it. I remember it. Simon Monnery. So he was doing stuff like that uh, as a kind of. Uh, and, and combat opera, which is basically uh, all of these very capable opera, opera singers just sort of insult you in opera. It was yes. very fun indeed, yeah. So they're kind of like combat opera. And Channel 4 like got them doing all kinds of things. And uh, Anyway, so uh, he... He at this time, and I, I was there because we were such good friends by then. I was sort of going and seeing things he was doing, and he had this great, great this thing called a beer for an idea, and his idea was, um, he thought it'd be a really funny idea to write uh, an opera about a Jerry Springer's show. And has anyone got any ideas? Um, and 
some people did have ideas, but whether or not they actually got used, but it was a beer for everyone got a beer for the idea. And that was that was a really tiny little thing in Battersea Arts, you know. Uh, and then within about two years, the Jerry Springer opera was absolutely massive. Like, in, you know, Harvey Keitel playing Jerry in Los Angeles and yeah, just it went stellar. So, you know, and my, any ideas I had about, you know, be, you know, like me and Richard get on so well. We should start a band with Richard, you know, <laughs> or out of the window because his whole thing just went stellar. But anyway, this song that he 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 left that we didn't hear, hadn't heard, I dug it out and I played it and it was just beautiful. You know, what he did was just so perfect. It was literally half awake singing. And he was singing about about dreaming, but he was he was also singing funny little lines. Actually, were just sort of really him saying that you know he did all of the cleaning up that he could, and uh, you know, but there's probably more to do tomorrow and dreaming and dreaming. But it was the way he sang it. Uh, the, the the way he sang it was was just beautiful, and the timing may have been a bit like, but just the. The tone of it he's such a nice sort of welsh voice he's got and it just sounded really gorgeous um so uh i attacked that one and that one sounds absolutely fantastic on the album and it's it's sort of really changed but it's still got the smell of its original inception and then the the other one was um believe it or not the, the, we when we got to the when we got to the cottage we set the gear up and we just wanted to test if it was working all right <laughs> and so the sound check we did was basically instantly turned out to be a really cool really groovy no one cares it doesn't matter what it's saying or anything it's just a lightweight wicked little song with mm. a really funky beat and it's recorded like really old school like on quarter inch tape and you know just the way it's everything about it is delicious and really kind of analog and and so that's found its way on the album just just because of the flavor and feel of it not because it's like you know it's going to be our massive single and we're going to be you know huge in the chase it's, it's it's really just a little giveaway piece of beautiful vibe music that's great i'm really glad it's on it um i was a little a little bit worried that maybe it's sound quality idea might actually not make it and that's just like some fantasy of mine of having all different kinds of sound quality in it but it's made it uh and then um there's a little incidental piece that we did there that's made it as well, which is about, which is actually about one of the only kind of lyrics that really comes from Woodentop's period from a little, little doodle in a book somewhere, which was just basically about uh, what do you do in your hotel room sometimes? And the truth is, is you just sort of arrange your shoes and you look at the, you look at the, the you know, the free soaps and stuff and decide which <laughs> ones you're going to put in your bag and which ones, you, you know, just those kind of like, you, those kind of like really simple, kind of lonely sort of, in a way you wish you weren't there kind of moments in like a really short little bit of like really bizarre vocal that then opens out into really beautiful uh, wall of vocal provided by again our friend June Mars Kingston she comes in and she did, did some stuff um Simon and her they're married now they've got their kids and they've also got a vocal booth in their house that they can record now right so yeah so they've provided a lot of the backing vocals as have I and a drummer called Frank 
Bing, who works with uh, a label called Slowfoot, and also uh, Charles Hayward, and uh, you know, um, this is not this heat. He was the second drummer in there, and he's got a studio, really great little funky place in um forest hill just down the road from me so you know i'd go to, he's my go-to if i want to record something live um i'll just go go there and do it so quite a lot of the albums recorded the parts are recorded in there uh and um there's some kind of yeah it's sort of it's 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 sort of it's got a really like rocking track on it which i'm glad has made it uh it's got it, it, it's got um I'm trying to think now. It's got, uh, oh, it's got, there's, okay. So there's a manager, a rock and roll manager, um, Seb Shelton, who managed the Wooden Tops all this time, is retired. He actually, this time, he really has retired from the music business. And he's right close to you in Norwich, actually. Oh, is he? <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a great guy. Um, and um, he, uh, uh, yeah, he, put, he pulled out of management and, um, Somewhere in the middle of it all, over John Peel sessions, I met Dick O'Dell. And Dick O'Dell was like the manager of the Slits and the pop group and lots of really interesting kind of Bristol things in punk time. Uh, but then since went on to have his own label, Gorilla. And I, I actually do a radio show with him. I'm his sidekick on his show. Um, and uh, that's on, what's that on? So Portobello radio at the moment. And uh, that's what we're doing tomorrow. Actually, we've got to record it tomorrow. Uh, and... Um, Dick also retired. Yeah, we're doing the show and then he's, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm going, you know, I might write a book, I don't know, or maybe I'll do it as a radio show, but whatever, I, I, I am retiring now. And for a complete laugh, I sent him a funny little piece of music that I had, which was um, inspired by somebody who sent me something as maybe an idea to collaborate on, which I didn't really listen to straight away. And then when they got back to me and said, have you listened to it? I sort of still hadn't. So I said, I will. And it was, I loaded it up and I had it on uh, for a second. And I thought, oh, this is actually quite funky. I quite like it. Um, and then uh, I got a call asking if I knew that there was a, a thing on telly about uh, the uh, Hubble telescope, um, that is, um, it's on. Uh, so I turned it on. And there's a, a really amazing moment that happened uh, that had me just scribbling down what the guy was saying. He was talking about, actually one of one of his uh of his uh ambitions was to go into space and to to work on the the hubble uh and he worked extremely hard to do it and then the time came they wanted to uh update it and um so he he uh sorry am i saying the hubble i think i actually mean the um the iss the iss sorry so he trains and trains and trains and then he gets sent up there and his ambition is fulfilled so he has to go out and he has to uh patch in a new piece of uh, a, a circuit board into uh, something and and fix it no it is hubble of course it's hubble because it's the anniversary of hubble so he has to spacewalk to hubble and he has to to to, to change the update the system so whilst he's there uh he has to open some screws to open a panel and one of the screws breaks. He, fuck, he fucking broke it. He'd just broken it. Shit. And the screw sort of 
okay, he's trying to grab it and the screw's sort of going away, but the screw's broken in half and it's left some of it in. So you still can't open the, the, the panel. So he calls back to, to, you know, to NASA and says, you know, and they tell him to please wait, await for further instructions. And the instructions come back and they basically just say, rip the panel off you know rip just rip it all off open the door and then do it so there's this kind of like little bar that goes across he has to, the, a rail a red little rail so he pulls that off pulls the the panel out changes the thing and does it and you know he's really uncomfortable comfortable about what he's just had to do uh and so then they say to him um well, okay, well done. Uh, you make your way back, but uh, you know you you can if you, you you've got twelve minutes if you want to just stay there and just enjoy the view. Please do, you know. So he does, he does, you know. And then so he's talking about this. I'm writing it down, and then so I kind of almost go into character as being him, where the words are coming from. But originally, what I did was I uh, I spoke them, uh, and then. I got, I've got uh, my my partner is from um, Japan, so she uh, she said the same in her accent, uh, but behind mine. So it was like I say it, then she says it, I say it, and she says it, uh, and uh, and it sort of sounded like something actually, and then kind of put some fun sounds on it, and you know theremins and things like that, just made it real kind of space retro. Uh, but then, like um, you know, really nice sort of uh, Mellotron Glocks feel that that real kind of boo that just makes you think of space in the sixties or the fifties or mm. whatever you know. So it's got a slight element, almost of like kind of like nightclub jazz about it. It's it's lounge, it's lounge music. That's what it is. But then I put I I don't know where it came where the inspiration came from, but basically I just put down a chorus to it. And as soon as I put down a chorus, oh my God, it's a thing, you know. So I sent it to Dick and, you know, this is before I'd even start. This was right at the beginning of pandemic and everything. I hadn't even thought of doing an album. And I sent it to him and he just wrote back to me. He said, what the hell is this you just sent me? And I said, oh, you know, it's a fun thing, you know. And he goes, well, there's nothing to stop me coming out of retirement, is there? And so, oh my God. So suddenly he's like getting really excited about this song and it suddenly comes to the point of view where he played it to, he played it to, um, uh, to somebody uh, and they came back and say, you know, we really love it, but um, actually we, we, we don't just put out one song, you know, we need more. So that's what kicked the idea of like finding more and then starting to think about, actually, this is time to be putting an album together anyway and doing the whole thing. So, you know, I've kind of written that album with Dick slightly overseeing it as well, you know, um, comments from him, like, you know, real kind of, hook's not loud enough or, or, or this or that, or, you know, just, just, just kind of knowledgeable uh, advice, which which is really nice to have. It's not, I don't feel at all in combat with it. I just feel completely happy with, with that. So I'll go back to the drawing board, you know. And, but I also have, uh, um, I also thought, since this is like real, 
it's very home home music like i'm i'm sending off and, and re requesting parts and people are sending them remote to me but they've done them from the home i've done stuff from the home but then i've done some stuff in the studio but then it's sort of cobbling it together but you know the first mixes were done were done by uh wayne smart who is the um front of house sound, sound engineer for killing joke which is exactly what is it so exactly what i'm looking for it's someone to go in there muller it you know <laughs> and just make it and and sure enough the first mix is coming it sounded like we were playing it live i mean it sounded like you know like a peel session or something it's like you've just gone in and played it but i realized that actually but yeah but that's not quite right it's got to be just a little bit more kind of album listening than that so we redid it uh and you know and and it's it's done now you know i can't believe it it's done now after all of that but um i i uh i brought in uh simon i brought in frank as i said wayne's done stuff there's also a guitarist friend of mine lives around the corner who's like a jazz guitarist who I, I brought in to ask him to do things that people would never ask him to do normally, like, could you not play it like a guitar? Could you play it like this or that, you know? So he's up for it, up for the challenge. Uh, and um, so, and but there's also, when I was doing solo stuff, I also met this saxophone player who looks like an Irish gangster, he's brilliant. Um, so he and I did a piece at home uh, years ago that I always wanted to do something with and I'd done a kind of version that worked out in a chill out nightclub but I, I wanted to take it further but I didn't really know what I was doing um, and this piece just fell apart it fell together in front of me from from places far apart like the drums on it were uh, were, were, were played on a bodran you know like oh, Irish yes. but but you know, it's like got a beater. It's like badum 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 badum. This has got like a like a brush on the top end, uh, and uh, a, a, a beater on the bottom. So you get boom You get this. It's like drum and bass, basically. You get this, this shuffle and this low note, which you can change. So it sounds like bass is changing notes, which you do by how hard you push the skin. Yeah. So um, yeah. So funnily enough. Um, Amy Leonard, who's who is a, a sort of folk singer and and player on the scene um, of the kind of whole folk gooses out scene, and she's involved. But she 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 played that beat to a different song that was the same tempo. So I took that beat and and I tried it underneath this sort of kind of sort of quite lofty, almost spiritual sounding sort of sax piece that was basically a wall. Of sax, so when when Simon came around, I asked him to play this note, hold it, and then play it again and hold it, and then you know we just made the notes getting low until it was just like you know a big wall of continual notes, yeah. and it's got a it's got a lovely sheen to it from the the brass. It's it, uh, and it's moving, so some notes are coming in and going out, and it's a live thing, uh, and it's a wall of sax, um, so. The beat was just brilliant, just worked so well with it. And then I don't know where the, I don't know why it worked, but I'd been to Sri Lanka. I had a just most romantic, most beautiful time in Sri Lanka. And um, 
it was really really sad to see one of the places where i i had one of the best times of my life absolutely decimated by the tsunami mm. uh and you know there's some really quite macabre things that i'd always wondered about like what happened to all of those little like um annex buildings that went all along the, the beach that had no kind of you know the, the beach is almost the same height as the water they're full of children i mean young children work in those making lace mm. all the way from the front of the building to the back and then the next building and it's building it's lace but that water you know i hope they got out you know i really hope they got out but that that freaks me out that does yeah, uh, knowing knowing that so uh i remembered a particularly great chap that did kind of um readings uh down at the bottom of the garden a, a place in gaul uh and um and then i started to remember more and more about the details of that i know what it was reminded me oh my gosh i had the i had the music but no words and then i was in spain at my good friend's place and we were walking through this little village and there was a metal cover to what was probably municipal electronics behind there or something like that and it was dirty and dusty and a really dark kind of greeny bluey color it was smeary but somebody as they'd walked past must have just smeared it with their hand as they went past and organized the filth <laughs> and there it was it was this clear image if you had the image already in your head which is the stick fisherman the stick fisherman in sri lanka they stand on those little platforms that they make yes, most right. of the night fishing yeah and the, the platforms go from one part they shared and so you know that's a, a a thing you see down on the coast all the time and you also see the guys making their way with their spears talking next to each other making their way to the, to the, to to work in 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 the evening uh and that's exactly what that image on that i took photographs of it i mean i'm not not wrong you see it straight away it's just in a corner it's not the whole you know it's just this area and it's just got this this little kind of almost sri lankan looking sort of little bridge and then the sea and then they're walking that way with their spears i mean you can't not think that if you've seen that before it's like, oh it looks just like yeah now it got me thinking about sri lanka and that got me thinking about all of those adventures and all those things and then that horrible horrible sting in the tail of what happened um yeah it's not a nice thing to write about but you know it's there it's there in my life experience so bang on and it went and it's just i don't know i don't know if i hope people will like it because it's 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 a long one for the wind it's quite deep for the wooden tops it's quite long yeah but it's a thing of beauty i think and it's very there's a lot of improvisation going on in it the whole way through um simon from the wooden tops really helped because he um he he i i was sort of going kind of you know talking about that image and he thought of you know a simple thing he just sort of waves crashing so his guitar the inspiration for his guitar part is crashing waves you know which is great that's just sort of you know kind of thing i'm looking for from musicians to is to think in that way you know uh and uh yeah um so it's like an album closer really that's what it is because it's 
it, it starts it starts with wind and it ends with wind and the album starts with with this kind of held note on the saxophone and the first appearance of the wall of sax in this quite sort of mid-tempo song you get it you you hear it and but then the album closes also with much more of that so it's, it's got quite a kind of good running continuity to it um and it's a lot about water it's about the importance of water it's about uh the water within us um you know the old john and yoko we're all water yeah yes. yeah that that exactly <laughs> we are and the most important thing in our planet is water without which we would not you know and the search for water in space and other planets and you know the whole the, the meaning of water so it's not i'm probably nowhere near the first person to have done such a thing but i can't call it water because my mate has already done it uh and <laughs> um uh and i want i was thinking of calling it moving bodies of blah, 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 blah. but actually the first track on that it's not as good as some of the titles I've thought of, but it really hits the spot because the first song on that is actually called Liquid Thinking. Uh, and that's the that's about the randomness, the randomness of life around you, you know, uh, and um, the liquidity of your life. And so uh, I think that might be the album title, too. I think I think that song title is the album title, you know. Mm. It's a bit scientific. It's a bit scientific. It's a bit nuts. Well, it's good, but, it, but you know, your life is like that. The relationships you go through, things that happen, it's all, you know, nothing's set in stone in your life. Is it? It's all moving around and quite yes, this is liquid. It's very... <laughs> wow, look, this is me. I'm going to have to go to bed soon, actually. <laughs> I was going to start a part two. And then... <laughs> and then... And then I'm going, you know, <laughs> yes, there's this other project. No, but oh this God, is... Oh, God, it's 11 o'clock. I, I was asked how long did I think. I said, oh, probably an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I am a, a verbal nightmare because, um, you know, there's a lot to say. I, there is a know. lot to say. There's a lot to get in. But anyway, so roughly, just when's the... When's the album next year? But have you? Got I don't a- know. I don't know because um, you know I've been sort of hoping to impress Dick enough with the rest of it for him to go back to cooking vinyl and you know see if we can, see if that works. You know, I don't really want to do the band camp thing, not because I have you know, because I have any bad feeling towards it, but I just sort of feel realistically because things like that they don't really so much do your publicity for you. You've got to have, you know, if you're a serious release, I think it's a serious release. Okay, I, yes. I may be like mental, but I think I think so, and, and the delusion, delusion. Uh, but um, you have to. It has to. It has to be everywhere at once when it comes out, because that you know. And when you do the kind of internet mod model, it's tricky. I mean, you know, just look at say for example what's happening at Facebook now. I mean, all the young people have gone because all of the adults are on there. So let's get the hell out of there. They're spying on us anyway. All the parents tell each other what we're up to. Yeah. Uh, so let's get the hell out of there. So they, there aren't young people on Facebook. So what is Mr. Zuckerberg thinking uh, and you know people sort of um, those are the people that are really interested like hanging out you know there's not many oldies want to spend much time it's too much more it's more plastic wearing VR headsets and everything I think he's just about to kind of completely blow it honestly you know if you can't you can't just go and chat 
easily with people and if you've spent time in seconds second life and things like that which i have you know i i i you know i like things like no man's sky and i game yeah uh, i've been i've been there since the beginning i watched it start and you know i i've i've had to be careful not to overdo the time on it and uh and you know uh i feel he's really missing the point and um I, I just, I just, I just, I think people have already done it, you know. People have already done the kind of like being something you're not talking in a virtual experience thing. It's, it's actually not really that new. No. So what is he thinking he's doing? Uh, is it because he's tired of hate groups and all the rest of it and shit? Is there some way where they can just go and look at each other and hate on each other and <laughs> shout at each other in VR headphones and he makes money out of it? What 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 is he thinking? Because you know, I do understand the whole point of view of you start something like as a college project. Yeah, I think where all the students can like link together and have fun together and 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 and, and liaise where they're going. And yeah, I understand that very basic beginning. I do. But but unfortunately, when you unleash it upon the world, the world is coming and the world is all kinds of like strange and twisted people as well as people are perfectly cool, you know. And so what do you do? Do you have, you know, I mean, you know, how many people are employed by Facebook to like sift through dodgy content, you know, reported content or, you know, some of it's like electronically done, but there are people doing it. That's their job because there's so much of it. Mm. A weird world. But anyway, look, this is good. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. I am literally going to have to go to bed. You've got soon. about four hours of it. Well you, well, you can just run it, can't you? You don't have to. Uh... Yeah, that's just, people love this. They do. They love it all. But um, yes, well, thank you ever so much. And um, it's been great kind of going back and listening to all your material again. It's been fantastic. So many good memories, you know, so many. But hopefully new, new ones coming up next year or the year after. Yeah, well, we're touring in March. Um, we've, we've had to cancel it three times. You know, um, the last yes. time we played was in the Academy, actually. We played in the Academy with uh, Alabama 3 and the Ruts. All, we all sort of local Brixton people. We all played in the same venue as Pandemonium. It was great. <laughs> so does it mean, have you got actual dates now or you've got the tour? Yeah. Yeah, they're not in front of me right now. Not conveniently in front of me. I should have thought of that, shouldn't I? This is mm, just what right. I'm supposed to do. But March. March is going to be the month. March for the yeah. Wedding Tops tour. Let's have a look. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you know, have you got many, are there many dates um, in March? Um, yeah, it's all 10 or 12 or something like that. Yeah. It's going to um, rock, isn't it? Well, I'm doing a thing on December the 3rd, which is... Uh, I kind of been invited to do a thing on my own. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some of the stuff that we've actually mentioned and some other stuff that we, we didn't get to, but also play some of the music. Uh, and then I'm also going to sort of play tribute a little while to my friend Pat F Fish, the jazz butcher, uh, mm -hmm. play some of, some of the stuff we did together before, you know, when we were in Oxford and uh, not much, but a little bit of it. And then just talk a bit about him and then uh, get on to, you know, just a sort of brief as possible flip through some of the stuff that we've discussed and then play the new album uh, and maybe a little bit of live as well. I don't know, because you, when you're talking, time runs, runs out so quickly. So, um, but yeah, so it's going to 
that's what I'm going to do. That's in West Hampstead, a West Hampstead Arts Club. Right. So, um, People love yeah. that, don't they? They love a good bit of chat. I don't know. I don't know. I've never done it before. So, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of easy talking with you because like you're there and you're asking me questions, you're triggering me to, so you're, you're helping me to blab on endlessly. But when, you know, when, <laughs> when, 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 when I'm, you know, just sitting there and there's all people in front of me, I think I probably have to have like a couple of notes to help steer me in the, you know, yes. and not, not okay. go over an hour because the Wooden Tops album is, is probably about an hour. And, and you know. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to do a bit of rehearsing, aren't you? Oh, bit of discipline, yeah. Discipline, I know. We love discipline. Right, I'm going to hit the road. But look, thanks so much. And I'll keep in touch. But good luck yes, for do. the date and also March. I've seen the dates. I'm going to go and watch lots of your Glastonbury Festival from 1986 now. <laughs> yeah, there is, there, is, there is actually a film there. I know. But what else is there? There's, um, the, the, 87. I, I, <laughs> you were at Glastonbury a lot. 88, the, sorry, the 88 recording is, oh, the 87 recording. There seems to be 86, 87. Oh, the BBC recorded Glastonbury Live. Uh, I, I don't know if it's on YouTube. It probably is. Yeah. Um, right. This is good. Anyway, yeah. look, take care. Well, nice to meet you. Nice to, to ramble on endlessly and um, <laughs> keep in touch. Yeah. Okay. Take yeah. care there, bro. See you Thank later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is how you have a snappy conversation with an artist. There you go. That was me in conversation with Rolo McKinty from the Wooden Tops. If you got that far, you deserve a house point. Right. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Please don't write in to say, that just went on forever. I know that, you know that, you don't need to tell me. Um, Also, yeah, all these interviews, from mostly from the 80s indie scene, but also an obsession with David Bowie, have been archived on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just do C86 show again. It's all there, it's great. Anyway, look, have a great week, stay safe.